You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Welcome to Canada's Court, a podcast by the Criminal Lawyers Association. This is Valerie Black from Riesig and Black Law in Ottawa. Ross Mackenzie Kirkpatrick versus the Queen. The complainant and the appellant met online, and up until March 2017, they had met in person on only a single occasion for about two hours. On that occasion, they discussed sexual practices. The complainant told the appellant that she insisted on the use of condoms during sexual intercourse. The appellant agreed that such a practice was safest for all concerned. A few days later, the two decided to meet again. They engaged in intercourse on two occasions, but on the second occasion, unbeknownst to the complainant, the appellant did not wear a condom. The complainant testified that she had not consented to intercourse without a condom, and her evidence was that she would not have done so if asked. The appellant was charged with sexual assault. At trial, following a successful no-evidence motion, the appellant was acquitted of sexual assault. The trial judge found that there was no evidence that the complainant had not consented to the sexual activity in question. The trial judge also found that there was also no evidence to show that the appellant had acted fraudulently. The Crown appealed the decision. The Court of Appeal for British Columbia unanimously allowed the Crown's appeal. The court held that a person could limit their consent to sexual intercourse on the condition that their partner wear a condom. Therefore, the complainant did not consent to the sexual activity. The defendant appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. Morning. Be seated. The case of Ross Mackenzie Kirkpatrick against Her Majesty the Queen. For the appellant, Ross Mackenzie Kirkpatrick, Philip W. Cote. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association, Ontario, Mark C. Alfiard and Kate Robertson. For the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, John R. W. Caldwell and Janet A. M. Dickey. For intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Dana Bonnet and Rebecca De Philippis. For intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Christine Rideout, QC. For the intervener, Barbara Schliffer, Commemorative Clinic, uh, Joanna Birnbaum. For the intervener, West Coast Legal Education and Action Fund Association, <coughs> Jessica Litwick and Kate Feeney. For the intervener, Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, Inc., Francis Mahan and Ar- Arkirat Kosa. For the intervener, HIV and AIDS Legal Clinic Ontario and HIV Legal Network, Khalid Jan Mohamed, Robin Nobleman, and Ryan Peck. Please note that there is a publication ban in this file pursuant to section 46.41 of the Criminal Code, Mr. Cote. Good morning, Mr. and Madam Justices. There are effectively two appeals being advanced in this hearing. The first is the appeal from the uh, BC Court of Appeal decision, Kirkpatrick, by the appellant. And the second appeal really is of the Hutchinson decision um, by both the respondent and arguably the majority 
in Kirkpatrick. It appears to be conceded by the respondent in their materials that the reasoning of the majority in Kirkpatrick is flawed and that the respondent agrees with the majority decision really in this, in this specific regard, which is the use of a condom should be included in the definition of the sexual activity in question under section 273.1. To achieve this, Hutchinson has to be overturned in part, and the appellant will uh, argue that there's no basis for this court to overturn Hutchinson, that it was uh, well-reasoned and is still and should be good law. Don't you think? Well-reasoned and recent as well. So you can, you can change precedent like that uh, within six, five, six years? So, so the when, 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 the, no. when the panel has changed, Mr. Just, Mr. Chief Justice, the the appellant says, of course, no, that you can't uh, change or you shouldn't change precedent that is both very recent and but also arguably um, very well thought out. The respondent in their materials list um, some general principles as to why. A court, the Supreme Court, can uh, overturn uh, precedent, um, though the appellant submits that none of those factors uh, listed in those cases apply to this uh, to Kirkpatrick. And I'll, I point to a few. The first is Hutchinson reflects the charter values of autonomy, liberty, and equality. Those are very carefully considered by the court in Hutchinson, um, and. Um, uh, there's nothing uh, in that analysis that is uh, in error, we say. Also, there have been no subsequent developments in the law that undermine the validity of Hutchinson, except for in the BC Court of Appeal decision in Kirkpatrick, the rest of uh, the, 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 the law as it relates to Hutchinson is in fact been, been quite clear. Um, the respondent lists uh, many cases where they say the issue of Hutchinson is is in some ways in dispute, and I, I'll respectfully submit that's an error, and I'll, I'll go to those cases. But another reason why Hutchinson shouldn't be overturned is Hutchinson does not create um, uncertainty, uh, uncertainty um, contrary to the underlying values of clarity and certainty that lie behind stare decisis. It's in fact the opposite. It's the clarity um, and certainty of Hutchinson that has attracted academic criticism and is the core of the respondent's position. So it's that certainty and clarity that they, it's, it's the portions of Hutchinson that are certain and clear that they want overturned for a very specific legal effect. Hutchinson makes it abundantly clear that uh, contraceptives don't form part of the sexual act, the sexual activity consented to. And it's that very specific portion that the respondent is seeking to have overturned in Hutchinson. Um, and uh, the respondent makes the argument that Hutchinson hasn't been applied consistently. And I, I submit that's incorrect. It has been applied consistently in our jurisprudence. And really, it is only Kirkpatrick, um, uh, the Kirkpatrick decision, that is the outlier. And I note, even in the Kirkpatrick decision, it's the um, the, the the Court of Appeal essentially distinguishes Hutchinson 
uh, the principles stated in Hutchinson by arguing that um, the majority in Hutchinson didn't really mean to include condoms in the definition, which I, I'll, 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 I'll point to seems, uh, uh, to use Justice Bennett's words, quite an improbable assumption, but also quite surprisingly also um, stating that the minority didn't understand, in Hutchinson, didn't understand the majority's position. Um, and I submit that an argument that the, the panel was essentially confused or misinformed isn't a basis in law to overturn a precedent. Um, it would be, it'd be quite remarkable if that could be the basis for overturning a precedent. There wouldn't be a Supreme Court or any precedent that could have any standing if you could just simply argue that the panel uh, the panel was confused. The law that is referred to by the respondent, which argues that um, that the um, uh, the respondent argues that the principles in Hutchinson have been implicitly rejected by these lower court and appellant uh, court decisions. Um, none of these cases, except with a few, uh, with really with one exception. Um, have emphasized um, the definition of um, a, the sexual activity in question, uh, including the use of a condom. Almost uh, all the cases are clear sex assaults. They're clear in the, in the sense that there is, there, there is a lack of subjective consent on the part of the complainant. And I, I won't go through these cases, but I'll just cite them, you know, Poirier, Potter, Perkins, So, IAD, Kraft, Ma, SY, all of those cases involve um, a lack of consent at the first stage of analysis. Condoms are a factor in these cases in that they form part of the factual matrix, but the use of a condom isn't essential to any of these cases. Now, there are two cases which, in fact, the appellant pointed out in his leave materials, Lupi and Rivera. Now, Loopy is a lower court decision um, uh, that ultimately on, a, on appeal, the reasoning was rejected and Hutchinson was applied um, as uh, uh, the principles, as, as, say, as, as the appellant um, uh, suggests. And in the Rivera case, the court does appear to misstate the law of sexual assault. However, the case itself there is clear lack of consent, subjective consent at the first instance. In Rivera, the accused um, is essentially about to begin a vaginal intercourse, and the complainant says, you have to wear a condom. Um, and, he and he essentially says, ah, you know, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. It it's a clear case where there's a lack of consent at the first instance. doesn't assist in any way um, the fact that the court into to some regards misstated the law as set out in Hutchinson. Now, the definition of the sexual activity in question in Hutchinson and the, and the concept of subjective consent are at the heart of this appeal. Um, and the appellant is asking this court to apply the definition of sexual activity in question set out at paragraph 55 of Hutchinson, which is that the sexual activity in question does not include conditions or qualities of the physical act, such as birth control measures or the presence of sexually transmitted diseases. If there is any doubt 
that the intention of the court in defining sexual activity in question, um, the court, this court can look to paragraph 64 of Hutchin, which makes the point even more explicitly, more plainly. The court states, effective condom use is a method of contraception and protection against sexually transmitted disease. My emphasis, it is not a sex act. Can I ask you this, though, Mr. Cote? What about the use of the word effective condom use? Going back to paragraph um, 55, um, again, conditions or qualities going to birth control measures, uh, presence of sexually transmitted diseases. The, the majority at no point says this is about condom or non-condom use. It says it's not about effective condom use. It's not about consequences such as risk of concern about risk of pregnancy or sexually transmitted disease. Is there not a distinction uh, to be made between the consequences, the motivation on the one hand, and the actual, for whatever reason, uh, 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 a clear statement that I will not consent to sex without a condom? Is there not a distinction between that? And before you point me to the minority decisions, um, it's the, the minority, of course, is not binding precedent. The majority is what's, uh, what's the precedent of this court. So if you can help me with the distinction, it seems to me that there is a distinction between a condom and a sabotaged condom. And that is the language of the majority in Hutchison. They talk about sabotaged condom. They talk about protected versus unprotected from a birth control or from a protection from uh, transmittable diseases. But that is a focus on motivation. It's a focus on consequences as opposed to isn't there just a simply a different physical act when um, it's either uh, 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 whether a condom is, is uh, used or not? Madam Justice, respectfully, um, uh, I think there, the, the court in Hutchinson was actually quite clear that there isn't a distinction um, as you reference. And I just want to point you to paragraph um, 41 of Hutchinson. And it's quite interesting in that um, the court in Hutchinson actually uh, is contemplating the actual particular circumstances of, the, of this particular case with Mr. Kirkpatrick. And they, they, direct the, they address that at paragraph 41, where the court says that the distinction between the touch with an unsheathed penis and the touch with a sheathed penis, that there isn't one, that there is no distinction. Um, and the court um, uh, states that the distinction between a faulty condom and the, as, uh, the uh, absence of a condom in the analysis of the sexual activity in question, um, it's, it's expressly rejected by the court in Hutchinson. And the court concludes that a lie or deception that results in unprotected sex, which obviously means um, uh, either a sabotage uh, or, or no condom, or a lie or deception as to the condition of the condom, um, that, quote, the law would be inconsistent because there is no reason in principle to analyze a case of a lie that obtains consent to unprotected sex and a lie as to the condition of the condom differently. And so, respectfully, um, the court in Hutchin actually addresses this exact issue. Is there a difference between the touch between a sheathed and an unsheathed penis? Um, 
And the court says no, that a sabotage condom, no condom, it's one in the same. Um, and that flows from the reasoning that the use of a condom isn't part of the sex act, but it's a form of contraceptive and it's a form of disease prevention. It's kind of encapsulated, is it not, at the beginning of paragraph 55 of the majority. The sexual activity in question does not include conditions or qualities of the physical act. True, goes on to say such as, but, but, but it begins with a categorical statement. And it, I wonder if, and if there was any doubt, I, I realize, I, I share my colleague's view that um, the dissent does not form part of the reasons of the court, but dissents are sometimes useful for clarifying what the law is by stating what the law is not. And, and in that regard, I wonder if paragraph 76, the first paragraph of the dissenting judgment, um, is informative in that regard. Thank you, Mr. Justice. I mean, it, it, it certainly is. I would I'd point first, though, the court to actually paragraph 97, um, where the minority states quite clearly that, and I quote, the heart of our disagreement with McLaughlin, Chief Justice, and Justice Cromwell turns on whether the use of a condom is included in the manner in which the sexual activity is carried out. According to our colleagues, the use of a condom during sexual intercourse does not change the specific physical sex acts which occurs, but rather is merely a collateral condition to the sexual activity. So the the minority seems to clearly understand um, the position of that the position of the majority is that it forms no part of the sex act. So a, a damaged condom, no condom, a partial condom, none of that, no, that isn't a relevant consideration. Um, and of course, the court at uh, paragraph six, uh, 76 also states, it's a different sexual activity than sexual intercourse without a condom. So stating when a woman agrees to have sexual intercourse with a condom, um, um, uh, she is consenting to a particular sexual activity. It is a different sexual activity than sexual intercourse without a condom. So again, the, 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 the minority right from the get-go, it's very focused on the core dispute with the uh, majority. And, I, uh, and again, I, I wouldn't know how to make the argument that the minority was somehow confused as a reason to... Um, uh, sort of uh, 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 disagree with their position. Um, Justice Bennett in, um, in the Kirkpatrick decision uh, in her dissent um, states that, uh, I, you know, states this point quite directly um, when she writes, quote, accepting my colleague's proposed reading of Hutchinson thus depends on two improbable assumptions that the majority of the court did not consider condom use to be a method of contraceptive, contraception or protection from infection, and that the dissenting judges fundamentally misunderstood the majority judgment. Um, Can you help again, me out in terms of consent? Why it matters what the motivation of the complainant is. One complainant may say, I'm worried about pregnancy. Another one may say, I'm worried about sexually transmitted, transmitted infections. Another complainant may just say, I don't like sex. With, I like sex with a condom. That's my preference. That's what I want. It's got nothing to do with pregnancy. It's got nothing to do 
with sexually transmitted uh, uh, infections. That is my choice, my autonomous choice. I will only have sex with a condom. And then we sort of take that with, you know, well, you're deemed to have consented, uh, even though you've made it perfectly clear that you don't want, that, that you will not have sex with a condom. Why are we getting into, at that stage, the whole question of motivation of the complainant? Why is it even relevant? Thank you, Mr. Justice. I, I think the law as it stands now um, supports your proposition, which is it's not relevant. And so the first question to be asked um, uh, is, did the complainant subjectively consent? And that concept maximizes the physical autonomy of the individual. When you, when you set aside all other kinds of circumstances and you really just go to the heart of the question, and that is, did this, did this person in this moment in time, not 10 minutes ago, not five minutes ago, a week ago, right now in this moment, did they consent to the sexual activity? It goes to the heart of uh, the issue. I agree um, with you. And, I, and agree. It, I agree with you. It does. And, I mean, one of the issues here is, you know, did the, did the accused know? that the complainant was not agreeing to sex without a condom. And did he go ahead anyways, unbeknownst to her, until after the act is completed, and then she finds out about that and uh, is very obviously disturbed about it. But, but I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, what, what, what does the complainant have to do? Like, just before they start to have sex, she says... I want to reinforce what I said to you 20 times in the past. I'm not agreeing to sex without a condom. I mean, let's get realistic about this. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do, by the way, as I say, it's got nothing to do with birth control or anything else. I just don't want to have sex with uh, a part of your body. I want to have sex where I'm being touched by some plastic thing. So this, this particular appeal is not about all condom use from Mr. Kirkpatrick's um, uh, perspective, and I, I, I submit from the perspective of Hutchinson. This appeal is about a very specific, narrow circumstance. And that narrow circumstance is this. When the, a situation where the complainant, in fact, does subjectively consent to the sexual activity in question, as defined in Hutchinson, but does so because of a mistaken belief or understanding or assumption that her par- or th- their partner is wearing a condom. That's very different from what I would say it would be all the great majority of other condom cases where it's quite clear, where if the complainant says you need to wear a condom and you proceed to have a sexual contact or intercourse without a condom, that there is no subjective consent. That's sex assault. And it, it always Listen, arguably sorry, always isn't had, or that has been case? for a very long time. Isn't that this case taken at its highest for the complainant? Isn't that precisely this case? She made it clear that she didn't want to have sex without a condom. I don't know how much clearer she could have made it. And then in the middle of the night, you know, he, he, uh, he, he penetrates her without a condom. 
and 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 she doesn't find out till the next day. That's her version. I'm not making no judgment on the outcome of this case. I'm just saying how much clearer could it get? So, Mr. Justice, it's actually, I, I, I respectfully would submit to you, it's actually quite unclear, and I, I point to these facts. Um, the first is this couple only met uh, twice, and so the first time they met, um, they made an arrangement to meet to determine their 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 compatibility, um, and they, you know, the evidence is this: they discussed um, safe sex practices. Now, her evidence is that um, she told them she only has sex with a condom. His evidence, which was, um, of course, he didn't testify. This was a directed uh, verdict, but his statement to police was entered into evidence. And in his statement to police, um, he indicated uh, to the police that, no, they never had a specific agreement, no sex, no condom. Sorry, you're going, off, you're going off the point here with oh. respect. I just said to you, I'm not judging this case. Mm-hmm. You're the one that has conceded, I think, a few moments ago that we're talking about subjective consent mm-hmm. and where the complainant makes it clear that he or she will not consent if if the person doesn't wear a condom how does that get turned on its head to say um, you get my deem consent even if you don't respectfully it's not deemed consent and I think this is the power of when you look at consent, you look at the subjective um, consent of the complainant in that moment in time. I think the evidence is overwhelming that she consented to the sexual activity in question. But the, 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 what the court or what the respondent wants this court to do is change the law so that even though she subjectively consented to vaginal intercourse, that we can go back and say, no, 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 because of what was said here on this day in this way, that in fact she didn't consent. It's actually introducing an objective standard to the, to the current test of subjective consent, where even if, because you could have this scenario, you could have a scenario where a complainant tells their partner, let's say a, a, a week or two before a sexual encounter that hasn't been planned, I always like to use a condom, always. And then they go and they have a sexual encounter and that same complainant didn't turn their mind to the use of a condom that day. They didn't explicitly turn she, their mind to go ahead, don't use a condom. She or didn't go ahead say and, in your example, I will not have sex unless you use a condom. You just gave me another, please don't move off the facts, okay? I'm just limiting this to a very narrow set of circumstances. Not a question of, well, you know, I prefer sex with a condom. She, on her evidence here, and we're dealing with a directed verdict, you must take it at its highest. She made it clear, perfectly clear. In fact, earlier that evening when they first had sex, and he did wear a condom, she made it perfectly clear that she would only have sex with a condom. So let's stay with that facts. And then he goes ahead in the middle of the night and has sex with her without a condom. That's what I call call misrepresentation, no? That's what I call lack of subjective consent. And and that's what three other judges called it in the dissent in Hutchison. So we're back to 2014. <laughs> I'd like, to, Mr. Cote, I'd like to ask you about the 
go back to the uh, question of Justice Karakatsanis at the start when she asked you about the distinction between um, condom use and sabotage condom. And, in your, and I have in mind Justice Maldaver's question about motivation. You, you answered, well, they're both species of unprotected sex to no condom and sabotage condom, it's, it's, it's one of a piece. And, and I'm wondering if we factor out motivation and focus just on she didn't want to have sex with, with a condom, without a condom, pardon me. I'm wondering if, if the, the distinction has to be revisited, that we really should try and look at whether there is a distinction between condom use and sabotage condom and that they're not just two, two species of the same genus. I mean, respectfully, the, the court's already made this analysis in Hutchinson, and I, and I say they've, they've made it very well, and it's very clear, and it's very logical. Um, the purpose of contraceptives is for disease prevention, and it's for uh, preg pregnancy. Um, uh, you could make the same comment about, um, instead of a condom, you can make a comment about, um, you know, a, a sponge or a female condom or an IUD or, um, uh, you know, a, 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 an oral contraceptive. I mean, I, I, I don't know if, I, mean, I don't know how helpful a line of argument this is for you, because, I mean, I mean, and how far I want to go down this road in making the point, but people might prefer sex with condoms for all kinds of reasons, right, including the sensation. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, it, I accept that sex with a condom and sex without a condom are two very different things, and I, I but... But I think it seems to me more persuasive to say that that was nonetheless channeled as a matter of precedent by this court into the fraud analysis. I, I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure of the line that you were embarking on is is really all that compelling. Well, before you leave that line, though, can I also ask you uh, about paragraph 54, where the majority says? One uh, agreement um, to, uh, to one form of penetration is not agreement to other forms of penetration. Or, or. I'm and coming I, back I, I to this that idea that there's a distinction between what you, what you say about the physical act and your motivation or consequences on the other hand, which clearly Hutchison was focused on, because in that case it was the distinction between a condom and a sabotaged condom that was the, was the actual issue in that case. So... Um Again, I, 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 I have to say that, you know, that distinction um, was addressed directly by the court when they, um, when they indicated that there's, in, in principle, no reason to treat uh, the absence of a condom or a damaged condom any differently. And I just wanted to say in regard to the... Sorry, the, they didn't the, actually say that. They said unprotected. 
I mean, you mm -hmm. look at the language, they, they always focused on protected versus unprotected, and that's from a consequence. Or they looked at effective condom use. They actually never did say it's the same thing whether you use a condom or not a condom. Well, I mean, respectfully, saying unprotected sex, I don't know how you could make any reference to, you could, you could interpret unprotected sex as somehow including wearing a condom. So I think in just in terms of the ordinary usage of those words, the meaning, the only meaning you can draw from it was, is without a condom. Because um, again, I mean, you can't have um, uh, unprotected sex with a condom um, uh, in that context, in that, in that sentence, because they, they, they address the, 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 the damaged condom at the first part. So um, I think it's quite clear that's exactly what the court is addressing. And the issue of consent, of course, the, um, uh, a, a complainant can always change their mind. So to the, and I'm, I'm going back about four questions at this point, but I just wanted to I really make this point that one of the principles in our jurisprudence is to consent is that it's, it's in the moment. It's not five minutes ago. So if a woman says, I'm consenting to vaginal intercourse an hour, um, an hour ago and then changes her mind or a minute ago or changes her mind or in the middle of vaginal intercourse and changes her mind, that is a lack of subjective consent. So we always go to the very moment in time to analyze subjective consent. We don't add any essential feature to the, um, uh, to the physical act in order to essentially have a, a, a quasi-subjective, objective standard of consent. It's always from the perspective of the, of the complainant. And so for her to have said, or for any complainant to say, I want my partner to use a condom a day ago or a week ago, that doesn't mean that flows to the moment in time that, this, that, that it's relevant to the analysis of consent. You have to look at the very moment in time. Um, otherwise, uh, the court is going to open up a can of worms of essentially contractual um, analysis as to, well, what does a complainant have to say, right? If does a complainant, I mean, do you have to send it in writing? Uh, and I don't mean that facetiously, but I mean making it very, very clear. If you say it you know, if you said it a month ago, a month ago, is your partner supposed to remember? If you if you say it not in the context of a specific sexual encounter that you're anticipating, but more generally, is that something that a, a, a future sexual partner has to take account of? And before they um, uh, have sexual intercourse, they have to draw that to the attention of the complainant, which almost imposes, uh, arguably, uh, an obligation to disclose. Um, the absence of condom use in those particular circumstances. I mean, it, it opens up a, a, a can of worms and it does, it does this, and which the court addresses in Hutchinson is it, um, it attracts criminal sanctions for behavior that, that otherwise shouldn't. So it, it overbroadens the scope of criminal law. And I think Kirkpatrick is actually an excellent example of that. Um, because on the evidence, Mr. Kirkpatrick, um, ab about 40 to 60 seconds into the intercourse with the complainant, asks her if it feels better. She says yes. Now, she says, of course, she thought he meant position. After the fact, she realized he meant uh, the absence of a condom. During the intercourse, his penis fell out of her vagina. He asked her to grab onto him and help insert his penis back into her vagina. She does. They continue to have intercourse. This is an example where... Um, an individual is making no attempt to hide 
that uh, the fact that he's not wearing a condom, short of him telling her, I'm not wearing a condom, I, I don't think there's more physically he could have done in that in that situation. Um, and so it goes to his and this goes to his particular intent. Under the, the, the law proposed by the respondent, he would be uh, there would be a lack of subjective consent at the first instance. Well, and so and that would be so in a situation be with respect where it's been made clear. You keep giving us examples where it's not clear. Here it was clear. This man was told within a few hours of the second incident uh, what her position was. And in fact, she went and inspected the condom that he used in the first one. So the simple truth is that he should have asked a question. Are you okay if I insert my penis without a, without a condom? That's all he had to do. That's all he had to do, but he doesn't. And so you say there's no need to take any reasonable steps to go against everything that she said up to that point and done uh, to ensure that she is consenting now to sex without a condom. I mean... It, 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 interestingly, and you've emphasized this point, um, Mr. Ju- this point, Mr. Justice, several times, is that it's clear that her own intent that she wanted a condom used. And what I'm what I'm pointing out is, um, if it was clear to her, it wasn't clear to the accused. That his actions are the actions of someone that he may um, have a good defense. We're not talking about that. We are taking this is a non-suit decision. Mm-hmm. We are taking her evidence at its highest. So let's not try the case. Let's look mm-hmm. at the principles. Mm-hmm. And, and so she has the right to change her mind. She can tell him two days before that she prefers condom use. She could ask for a condom in the first sexual encounter. She has the right to change her mind. She doesn't have to insist on before the use of Before he inserts second, his penis into encounter. her without the condom. Before he does. It's a little late after the event, wouldn't you say? Sorry, there was a bit of cutout at my end, um, Mr. Justice. I didn't quite hear the full comment. She has the right to change her mind. There's no question about that. But you don't get the right to... You, you, don't, you don't get sort of um, uh, out of the problem when you do it without her consent and then later on, partway through, are you consenting? She says, okay, I'm consenting. The first penetration is without consent. And again, it, it, arguably the first penetration is well consent if we're applying the essential features test. And respectfully, that's, I, I say that's not the law in Canada. Um, and so there isn't a requirement for Mr. Uh, Kirkpatrick or for any complainant to um, give advance notice uh, that they're not wearing a condom, even if it's been discussed um, uh, 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 previously. She, she has the right to consent to the sexual activity that they're engaging in. Um, and of course, if he's if he's um, deliberately doing it without her, and she's not consenting to the sexual activity itself, that of course is a different scenario. But this is the narrow the narrow scope of uh, the, this case is, is is the narrow range of she had the assumption that he was wearing a condom, and because of that assumption, she subjectively consented to the sexual intercourse. And so, um, respectfully, the court's uh, comments suggest that there is now a positive. There should have been a positive obligation on. On um, uh, or there should be a positive obligation on a, an accused 
that if at, at some point in time in the future it's clear that one person wants a condom, if they are to begin to have sex without it, he's got to or, or, or um, uh, he's got to uh, uh, essentially make inquiries as to the nature of consent. And respectfully, I, I state that's that's just not the law in Canada. He made the assumption, if anything, didn't it? Isn't it he that's got to get rid of the assumption? The assumption going in is she will not have sex without a condom. So if that assumption is going to be overturned, surely to goodness he's got to say to her, you know, is it okay now? Why are you putting the assumption, why are you... Why are you putting it on her after he's already started doing what she made clear she didn't want? Well, I'm not putting on her. That, in fact, is her assumption. That's what she says. That's her evidence, right? She thought he was wearing a condom. She wasn't concerned with it. Um, so that is an assumption that she made. So it's not, I'm, I'm respectfully, I'm not putting that on her. That, that is her assumption. Um, and, and to your point, and you know, uh, to the earlier point where she's allowed to change her consent, when he nuzzles up to her, and this is an excellent example of, he nuzzles up to her, she feels him poking at her behind, um, she, she pushes back a little bit, readjusts herself, it's a very short period of time, and then they begin engaging in sexual intercourse. Um, and so uh, in that circumstance... Um, uh, and, and I understand you're, you're saying we shouldn't be arguing the case, but this, this case has got a very specific and narrow set of circumstances. Um, uh, again, she, she has the right to consent in that moment, regardless of what she said previously. Um, and you know, and it's, at that point in time... The problem, the problem is, is it already started, right? The last word from her was she wanted a condom. <clears throat> so it, it doesn't lie in his mouth to then... Well, Start, start it without a condom and see if she's okay with it. I mean, that's pretty, it's as simple as that, isn't it? Well, and I think what we're doing, unfortunately, is we're, we're not sort of looking at the, the dynamic situation, which is a sexual encounter, right? And so um, I, I, I appreciate the comment, but, um, you know, they're, they're essentially, you know, cuddling in bed, um, they're they're quite close to each other. Um, he he's clearly, penetrating her. He's penetrating her, and she's well, conditioned and yes. she's conditioned penetration on a condom. Look, I don't want to sound like some kind of a puritan here. I I understand that these can be dynamic situations, but let us not allow that to obscure the the the, the central point was that she had conditioned penetration on a condom, and he. Second time round, penetrated her without one. And then tried to reassure her that this felt better. But, but before he did that, he penetrated her without a condom, contrary to the condition she had imposed on penetration. I, I, I honestly, I, I, I'm not sure if there's any other way to look at it. But you'll disabuse me of this, I'm sure. <laughs> Mr. Kotick, not, oh, no, please, please go ahead. I'd like to give you your opportunity to answer Justice Brown's questions before I pose my own. Oh, of course. Um, it, just in regards to the factual matrix of how this sexual activity uh, occurred, and, and, and I don't think there's any, any debate about um, 
debate about the, 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 the factual matrix. I think this case is quite clear on the factual matrix. My, my points lie to the nature of subjective consent and that it was, it's always open to the complainant to, um, to consent to the sexual activity in question. And so that's a separate analysis from what was, uh, in, the, um, what was in the accused mind. And, that, and that's a distinction I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make clear. Perhaps I'm not articulating as well as I, as I imagine I am, but that it's, it's ultimately, it's, and we go back to the autonomy of the complainant, it's, it's her subjective consent that is the first question. Well, and communicated, communicated consent, right? That's been the law since Barton. Yes, no, of course. But she can communicate not just with words, but with her actions. And so as they're, you know, snuggling next to each other, he doesn't take any steps. Um, you know, she says she doesn't hear, you know, a condom unwrapping or him, you know, the motions of putting on a condom. They're, and they're laying right next to each other, right? This is not, um, you know, it's not like he's across the room or something of the sort. Um, in that moment, she can um, uh, subjectively consent to sexual activity, regardless of what she said previously. She can, um, but she didn't. Her, the, her last word on consent, her last word on condom use was has to happen right oh, whether we categorize this as 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 going to fraud vitiating consent under mm -hmm. Hutchison or as consent as some of my colleagues would apparently like to channel it through I mean the point is the last word on condom use was it has to happen so, so until she communicates otherwise, he had to use a condom. So, well, whether I, that constitutes that's... fraud, vitiating consent, or condition of consent, but, but, but. So, so this is, I think, this is where I, I, we might uh, disagree, and that is the the evidence is that they had a discussion about contraceptives and she said at that time that she always has sex um, with a condom but that wasn't in contemplation of any particular sexual encounter that was in occur between the two of them that was all arranged afterwards so they they have this initial meeting for compatibility they exchange right. some communications so i mean to to agree with your proposition that we would have the law would have to be this at, at any point in or at we imagine there'd be a limit but if in the past someone made a reference as to how they prefer sexual contact, um, sexual activity, that would essentially be uh, like in the military standing orders. Those orders would always be in place until they were uh, uh, verbally revoked. Um, and I, I, I don't think that's the law in Canada. I, I don't think you can, you can put a proposition and, and have it stand out there for essentially all eternity um, or for any, you know, for... Um, you know, for, for, for long periods of time. I, mean, I, I, I respectfully say that that's not the law in Canada. Um, and I, I appreciate the point that, you know, she did, uh, you know, the evidence, is for her evidence that she communicated only sex with a condom. But what we have to look at is in that particular day, in that particular moment, um, what was being consented to. And um, it's not an overarching uh, 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 umbrella we're putting over her consent. Um, and, and again, this goes to the point of her own physical autonomy, regardless of what she said yes or no to in the past. 
Um, she, her consent has to be in the moment. Um, and in this particular case, she had the misconception that he was wearing a condom, and that was the basis of her consent. May I ask my question now, please? It, um, it relates to, um, I understand that you're saying that um, uh, the issues before should not be decided under uh, subjective consent to the sexual activity in question, but that you say Hutchison requires uh, an analysis under fraud and a vitiation of consent by fraud. Accepting that, I want to talk about the concept of fraud itself. Mm. Um, and uh, to, to get your um, submissions in respect of um, what fraud means in this context. Um, it requires a dishonesty, and you say, well, there's no general obligation to disclose uh, condom use. But isn't the dishonesty, my, my question, isn't the dishonesty measured in the context of what the conversation is between the parties? And so uh, it, when someone conditions... Um, a, a sexual activity on, let's say, a condom, wouldn't that go to dishonesty? That's my first question. And my second question is a bit more fundamental, and it relates to the notion from other cases that were in the HIV context that talked about a significant risk of bodily harm being a requisite of fraud. And I guess I'm going to ask you this question. I understand why in Courier and Mabior and in Hutchison that may have been uh, an issue because of the nature of the facts that were before the court. But if we're talking about an issue where consent is central, we're talking about vitiation of consent, why should there be any requirement of a significant risk of bodily harm when what we're talking about are the dignitary interests and the physical inviolability and the ability to condition consent in the fraud analysis. Why should we be looking at that when, I mean, the other cases, yes, they were in an HIV context, but why here, why now? So I'll answer the second question first. Um, in particular, um, and I just want to clarify that I understand, uh, Madam Justice, you're you're essentially asking me uh, in in regards to um, uh, the the two part test. Why is it necessary uh, for there to be a component for risk of harm in this particular context of condom use? Did Great. I, did I? Right. In, in the others, but, that factored in because that was in part uh, what, what was being argued. Uh, but why would fraud, as a concept that's just a bare statement in the criminal code, it's fraud, it's been interpreted in the past, but why in a context of this kind of case uh, would we overlay significant risk of bodily harm? And... Um, so that's actually, it's, that's addressed in, in Hutchinson as well, that concept. And it's essentially that there's a, a bright line between conduct that is, that attracts criminal sanction and conduct that doesn't, that we might find immoral, um, but it doesn't attract uh, criminal, uh, criminal consequences. And in this particular, uh, or in, in, in Hutchinson, and I'm just, I'm trying to quickly find my reference, but I'm
I'll, I'll, I'll try to find it um, in a bit. But essentially, the court makes this quite clear that there is um, a type of conduct that we don't want to uh, criminalize. Otherwise, it'll be it'll cause the criminal law to be overbroad. And that's addressed in maybe or in courier and the two part test um, of requiring both fraud and the risk of harm um, is the bright line to that. So the bright line being if they're but today I'm, I'm holding up my wedding ring. OK, and I'm a scoundrel and I put this in my pocket and I say, of course, I'm a free man. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at liberty and, and I present myself that way. And on that basis, um, things proceed, shall we say. No, I'm a scoundrel, but is this a sexual assault? I mean, that's really the kind of thing that I think we're trying to avoid, isn't it? It is. And it's criminalizing conduct that um, uh, also, it's criminalizing conduct without intent. Um, and I, I say there's an example that in Mr. Patrick's case that he um, arguably doesn't have the intent to um, uh, essentially deceive the uh, Except the may I interrupt but, you on that? Oh, We're talking here about the presence or ap- absence of consent for the actus reus. Whether or not, which, whichever way um, this is decided, whether as sexual activity in question or a vitiation through fraud, we're still only at the actus reus. Uh, uh, the Crown would still have to prove uh, that there's intent, and mm-hmm. the accused would still have all of the arguments in relation to a lack of intent that can be can be raised in the circumstances. So let's not please mix up those two stages. No, of course. So to the point where um, we, we, we don't want um, to, to criminalize behavior, even though there is some fraud, the risk of harm essentially is the bright line to that conduct that shouldn't, should and shouldn't be criminalized. To use the, the, the words of Mr. Justice, being a scoundrel or, or, or being you know, immoral isn't uh, uh, necessarily, it shouldn't necessarily attract criminal sanction. Um, and of course, there's a, I mean, the, the, the nature of fraud is there, there could be an unlimited a number of uh, circumstances where an individual um, deceitfully obtains uh, consent, but without the risk of harm, it doesn't meet the threshold uh, for criminalization. Um, while we're on the, on, just on, on, the, on the topic of fraud, I did want to um, address the, um, the majority decision uh, by Justice Bennett. Um, and essentially, her, her, uh, the, the court argued that the trial judge erred by, applying, by misapplying the, the test um, of fraud um, by essentially demanding or requiring that there was an overt, um, uh, uh, there were overt actions by, um, uh, by the accused. And I just note um, at paragraph 25 of the trial decision that the court in uh, setting out the, uh, the test for fraud points to number one, dishonesty, um, which he specifically states, quote, which can include the non-disclosure of important facts. And he goes on at paragraph 29, um, where he finds that the uh, complainant consented, um, but he says, um, uh, uh, more particularly, were the actions of the accused in this case not wearing a condom for the second incident of sexual intercourse dishonest? And this could include non-disclosure of important facts. 
So he does, in fact, state the law correctly on on uh, on both instances that it, it, there is both there could be both an overt uh, deception and there and there also could be uh, deception from non-disclosure. And then he goes on at paragraphs 31 to 33 to find that there's no evidence at all of any deceptive act. And that no evidence includes both the non-disclosure as well as um, as well as uh, any uh, any overt acts. Can I ask you um, about um, the uh, discussion about the um, uh, deprivation? Um, I'm looking at um, Justice uh, Bennett's reasons uh, in the Court of Appeal, and I'm wondering whether uh, allowing the side effects to um, HIV treatment uh, to be considered a deprivation undermines maybe or and courier, you know, standard of reasonable uh, possibility of transmission. I think that was part of the question uh, Justice Martin was asking. And secondly, does it matter because Hutchison, you know, paragraph 70 makes clear that risk of pregnancy is a deprivation in any event? So I, I, I agree. I think Hutchinson makes it quite clear that risk of pregnancy is a deprivation. Um, and so I'm not sure um, it matters. And I only note that we never got that far at the trial, of course, that the evidence, um, uh, we, we, there were no submissions made on the risk of harm. So that would have been the next motion that I made if the first motion had been uh, denied. Um, and so um, there, there really were no submissions on that particular, on that particular point. I will say that um, uh, uh, the uh, obtaining of medical treatment um, for um, uh, as a result of the sexual encounter, I would it, it, I, I would submit that it's it's quite remote. It's not a, it's not a realistic risk of harm that comes directly from the sexual encounter, um, and it's not something that um, uh, would reasonably flow from a sexual encounter because you could argue. Um, if there was any any time someone made that sort of uh, uh, personal choice, they would do it for a variety of reasons, um, and those reasons don't necessarily flow from the um, uh, flow from the sexual act itself. It's interesting in this case. The the and again, I just I want to be clear. There, there's certain evidence that came out in this regard, and it was quite limited um, uh, to conversations that were had by health workers and Mr. Kirkpatrick. So when, when the complainant initially um, uh, went to seek treatment, they, um, they called Mr. Kirkpatrick. And it was after those conversations that there was, a, uh, and, and I guess their conversations with the complainant, which we were, weren't, of course, privy to uh, in all their detail, that a, a decision was made um, uh, to engage in that HIV uh, preventative treatment, I mean, which is quite remote from the actual sexual encounter. Um, but again, it, it was an issue that we just, we didn't go into in any great detail at the trial level. Mr. Cote, I have a question for you regarding what Justice Bennett said in paragraph 54 of her reasons. She says that the evidence in this case is critical to my conclusion that there was evidence of fraud sufficient to overcome a no evidence motion. So of course she's a influenced by the fact that it is a no-evidence motion and that there was some evidence of dishonesty. 
What do you have to say on that? Are you saying that there was no evidence at all of dishonesty? So the, the trial judge found that there was no evidence of dishonesty, and that's looking at all the evidence in context. I understand if you just isolate the issue of non-disclosure mm -hmm. um, and you and you ignore all the rest of the evidence, um, I think you could reach a conclusion that that was um, there was some evidence. But that's of course that's not what the trial judge is doing. The trial judge is looking at all the evidence, and there's actually this improbable uh, proposition that's before um, before the court, and that's this. Mr. Kirkpatrick is, um, of course, and we, you've already heard this, he asked her if it feels better. He asked her to hold his penis to reinsert it into her. He's overtly indicating that he's um, uh, not wearing a condom, short of saying, I'm not wearing a condom. It can't be, both, it can't be true that, that, the, uh, that Mr. Kirkpatrick is both trying to deceive by omission, which is by not stating that he's wearing a condom, and at the same time, is um, uh, advertising that he's not wearing a condom. I mean, b both of those things can't, he can't do both of those things at the same time. And so when the judge looked at all the evidence, um, although non-disclosure could be, um, uh, 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 can be done for a deceptive purpose, when you look at all the evidence, it's not possible because it was uncontroverted what he did do, right? Asked her the question, had her touch his unsheathed penis. And so both of those propositions can't exist at the same time. Um, and since the, 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 his actions were, again, uncontroverted, you, the court it wasn't open to the court, and I respectfully submit it's not open to this court to conclude that there was some evidence of, uh, of deception or fraud, because in, in, the, in the totality of the evidence, there was none. I, the, um, I, I, maybe I'll close on this point. Um, the, what the respondent is asking this court to do is essentially rewrite section 273.1. The uh, legislation as it's written and was interpreted by the court in Hutchinson reads both section 265 and 273, um, reads them together harm harmoniously, giving force to each um, uh, and giving uh, force to the intention of parliament as much as it can be uh, uh, seen. And what the respondent is asking this court to do is essentially to rewrite section 273.1 to include in it essentially a subclause where the physical act is now um, uh, redefined. That I say is something that should be left to the legislature. Um, this decision was from 2014. Section 273.1 was, in fact, already, it's been amended since Hutchinson came out. There are dozens and dozens, of course, bills to amend the criminal code before the court or before uh, Parliament. If it was something that Parliament wanted to do, um, it, it, that's where it should start. Um, this change that's being proposed by the respondent would be a, a drastic change in the criminal law in Canada will potentially impose an obligation of disclosure um, and it will create both an objective element to consent at the first stage as well as the subjective uh, subjective element. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Kuti. Uh, Mark Alfjord. Good morning, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, Justices. 
the Criminal Lawyers Association Ontario uh, will make two submissions. One, that the approach adopted by the Hutchinson majority, that the sexual act in question should be narrowly defined to include only the basic physical act agreed upon by the parties should be maintained. It's the CLA's position that this is the only workable approach that provides for certainty and consistency at the first branch of the consent test and also acts as a bulwark of casting the net of criminality too wide. The, the fraud vitiated consent provisions is really where Parliament and what this court has adopted in Hutchinson is in place to ensure that uh, preconditions or essential features put on a consent that is given to the, to the basic sexual act in question does not just simply devolve into a stark choice of personal preferences that, that a complainant may put on uh, their consent uncoupled with risk. Now, obviously, recognizing that um, complainants are free to determine how they are touched, the problem really uh, kind of germinates and becomes apparent, and it's the problem that the Hutchinson majority recognized, is that when you accept that preconditions of consent um, beyond simply to the act in question uh, are allowed, it creates a very blurry line, um, not just for matters that, sh that, that the law should treat as culpable, uh, but other personal preferences that may be very much extraneous to the act in question. And the, one of the issues in this case is specifically about condom use, but in the CLA's position, we can't just simply look at that one type of act, despite the fact that Hutchinson already addressed this. And it's obviously the CLA's position that we, we uh, join with the appellant that, that as a matter of stare decisis, this, this issue has already been decided. But the question really becomes, where do you draw the line if um, extraneous or essential features are adopted? For instance, if, if a complainant uh, testifies that how they want to be uh, touched in a sexual intercourse encounter uh, is that the accused uh, wear their shirt to bed, or as Justice Rowe pointed out, only with someone who is not lawfully wed. Uh, those factors potentially creep in and create the situation where there's no, there's no ability for the court to simply say that that isn't conduct warranting criminalization, regardless of the personal preference of the complainant. And that's really, in the CLA's position, the weight to which the fraud vitiating consent provision or the function that 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 uh, that, that serves, it, it suggests that only where there's dishonesty and risk to to the complainant's health or safety, uh, physical safety, that um, uh, that that the the law will in fact criminalize that. And I would submit, uh, just in terms of the dispute and the questions that were asked about stare decisis and and Hutchinson, that. Uh, they're, the majority in the dissent in this particular in Hutchinson were quite clear about uh, the idea that the dispute in issue was whether condom use falls within the rubric of those uh, essential features or whether it is not tied to the basic act in question. The majority decision at paragraphs 54 and 55 really should be read in conjunction with what the majority decision set up paragraph 64, 
which clearly in, in the CLA's submission suggests that condom usage is a method of contraception uh, and disease control, disease and contraceptive control, not a sect act. And that was the exact issue that uh, the majority uh, recognized uh, was the dispute in that case. And I agree with, um, I'm not sure who asked the question, but the idea that the dissent is is obiter and it's not law, but the, the this was the impanelment and the, the litigation that was before the court at the time. And I think we can take that the, the two positions in, in writing lengthy dissenting and majority judgments that were completely at odds with one another understood that the dispute was before them, what, what, what the dispute was before them. And this issue was decided, it was decided in the correct manner to keep only culpable conduct uh, criminal and not effectively cast the net too wide to encompass uh, non-culpable conduct. Mr. Halfyard, in terms yeah. of casting the net too wide, why, if you, and you referred to the dissent or the minority reasons in Hutchison, why are yes. the criteria that are enunciated in paragraph 92, why do they give rise to the concerns you've identified? And those criteria were the identity of the sexual partner, the sexual nature of the touching, and the manner in which the sexual touching was carried out. That seems to me doesn't include wearing a shirt to bed or not wearing your wedding ring. It seems to me quite a different type of uh, set of circumstances that don't give rise to the uncertainty that you've posited. Okay, Justice Jamal, I'd answer that in two parts. I agree that uh, the wedding ring example maybe a, a, you know, a marginal thing that doesn't actually encapsulate the sexual issue at question. But taking the example of uh, a personal preference about wearing a certain item of clothes, the whole idea behind the, the, the issue of condom versus non-condom on the respondent and intervener's position is that that creates a physical barrier that affects the underlying touching that's at issue. And that should be something that the complainant has autonomy to be able to say, um, I'm not okay with that. Therefore, consent is not aff affected at the first branch under 273.1. But in my submission... Um, that would also go to examples like um, an article of clothing, which I'm not trying to belittle condom use because obviously it, it prevents disease and, and other qualitative features. But I'm simply saying on a more base level, that affects the nature of how the complainant is touched. And if, we, if the court adopts a test that simply says all factors that, that affect the how of the touching are criminal that causes serious concerns about widening the net. And these are the, exactly some of the things that the majority in Hutchinson noted was concerning. And it creates this blurry line between culpable and non-culpable conduct that, uh, you know, we're not just talking about the one uh, issue of the condom in this case. We're talking about a broad test going forward that is certainly going to have to be fleshed out uh, in other in other cases, and the concern from the CLA's perspective is that it creates a blurry situation where uh, the manner of how the touching may not always rise to the level of culpability or concern that was expressed by the complainant in this particular case. Thank you very much. I think that just you. complete your answer. Um, I think we could refer to paragraph 54 and 55 of the majority reasons that we wrote in 2014. Thank you very much. Thank we'll you. take a break. Morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Be seated. Mr. Caldwell. 
Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, the Crown is asking this court to clarify the law of consent and to confirm that a complainant's consent to sexual intercourse can depend as a matter of law on her requirement that her partner wear a condom and to hold that Mr. Justice Groberman's reasoning in the court below was correct, that sex with a condom and sex without a condom are physically different sexual activities in question Mr. Caldwell, so you are asking us essentially to revisit Hutchinson. When you say uh, you are asking us to clarify the law of consent, does it mean uh, in simple terms that you are asking us to revisit Hutchinson? Uh, we, are, we are asking this court to do that as, as well. Um, It, uh, it, it may be ultimately, though, uh, perhaps if this court is reluctant to do that, uh, that uh, the court can simply clarify. Well, what, uh, what do you mean reluctant? Don't you think um, that the Supreme Court of Canada should be reluctant in changing or reversing a precedent of 2014? Chief Justice, I, I, I bear in mind what was said at the outset about this being uh, a precedent that is only seven years uh, old, and the Crown recognizes that uh, revisiting a past decision of this Court is not a step to be taken lightly. Uh, but with that said, it is a step which uh, must be taken here in the Crown's submission. The proper interpretation of sexual activity in question should include condom use. This is consistent with the Court's landmark decision in Yunchuk in particular as well so, as so other... So all those arguments, sir, I'm sorry to interrupt. All yes. those arguments were, you know, I was on the panel in 2014. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm the only judge remaining in the majority on the panel. My colleagues, Kirkatsanis and Maldiver, were in dissent. And I remember all those arguments were made in 2014. So why? Tell me why we should change this precedent if only because... Judges, the names of the judges have changed on, on this court. Uh, yes, Mr. Justice, uh, Chief Justice. Um, uh, it's not simply a matter of uh, a change of composition of this court. Uh, the, uh, in the Crown submission, doctrinally, there are problems with making the significant problems with making the fraud section of the code, uh, vitiating consent, do the, the work. The doctrinal of, problems that you identify. Um, are drawn from you and Chuck and J.A., yes? Yes. So both of those decisions predated Hutchison, so isn't that effectively a submission that Hutchinson is per incurium? I mean, really, in substance, isn't that what you're saying? <laughs> Not... Certainly, it's the Crown's submission that um, clarification is required, that uh, certainly many, uh, including Madam Justice Bennett, the appellant, uh, my friend from the Criminal Lawyers Association, uh, many commentators take the view that there is uh, a, a, a doctrinal gap or an analytical gap between what this court But said. I don't and care what the commentators say. What do you say? Uh, we say that there is a, is a gap and that uh, this court uh, was, um, uh, that the reasoning of the majority was problematic in uh, putting forward and uh, a Well, what does restrictive... problematic, I'm sorry, come on, these are weasel yes. words, a gap, a problematic, <clears throat> isn't the substance of your submission at paragraphs 8 through 10 of your factum that... 
This is wholly inconsistent with these prior cases. In fact, those are your words, wholly inconsistent. And and I'm suggesting to you that that is, in substance, a submission that that Hutchison is per incurium. That would be one way of, of, of characterizing it. It, it certainly is um, uh, what, what requires clarification. Can, can, uh, I, add, can I ask, an, uh, perhaps there's another way to, to say it. Certainly pure incurium is kind of a rare, rare bird. Could one say that Hutchison deals with unprotected sex and specifically sabotaged condoms? And what's before the court in Kirkpatrick is condom use irrespective <laughs> of the purpose for which condoms are required by the complainant. I mean, you clearly don't agree with that, because why would you be ur- urging us in your factum to overturn this aspect of Hutchison? You're not saying it's distinguishable. You're saying it has to be overturned. Well, we do say that it, it, it uh, at, at minimum, it needs to be uh, clarified that uh, the uh, restrictive uh, approach to the meaning of sexual activity in question uh, in Hutchinson, uh, that is uh, a part of the judgment um, that is most most uh, at uh, odds with what this court said, particularly in Yunchuk, but also uh, in J.A., to put restrictions on the word, the critical word, how, how uh, a person is touched and and critical and put those limiting distinctions, uh, limiting significant limitations on uh, how a person can control how uh, their body is touched. Those were important principles, and they've been restricted if one looks at the definition, the restrictive definition in in Hutchinson. Uh, So it does set up uh, a conflict in, in terms of uh, significant conflict in, in this court's uh, jurisprudence between you and Chuck uh, and J.A. And, and on one hand, and particularly with respect to the meaning of the word sexual activity in question uh, in Hutchinson. And, and that's where uh, clarification, if not uh, partial uh, uh, revisiting and partial overturning is required uh, in, in our submission to the restrictive uh, definition uh, on certainly on one interpretation, uh, it doesn't permit that distinction that Mr. Uh, that the Justice Kassir uh, raised between sabotaged condoms uh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, no condom at all. We, we recognize that uh, one uh, obstacle to that argument is the rest- restricted definition uh, of, uh, of sexual activity in question in the majority judgment in Hutchinson, which is to define uh, a sexual act, uh, sexual acts in, in very basic terms. Vaginal intercourse is vaginal, penile vaginal intercourse is penile vaginal intercourse, and it doesn't matter where, whether a condom is, is present or not. That is, uh, appears certainly to the Crown to be one of the difficulties, uh, uh, perhaps uh, with, with distinguishing uh, the, uh, the two cases, uh, finding perhaps that it's, uh, in, 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 in Justice Brown's terms, uh, per incurium. Um, the, uh, it, it seems to me an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary criticism of the ratio that it is clear 
Ordinarily, a criticism is advanced that it is unclear. But now we have your submission that the problem with the majority is that it is clear. Um, the difficulties, uh, certainly, one, we see clarification, but two, one of the, the difficulties is that uh, it has uh, limited and, and, and arguably, according to the appellant uh, in the, and, and the criminal lawyers uh, in, in this uh, scenario, uh, it's excluded uh, the wishes of the complainant in the case at bar, as well as in similar cases, and we know there have been a number of similar cases, from any consideration or any relevance under the consent section. And we do have the law deeming people like the complainant uh, and uh, in, in similar situations not to have consented on the basis, on the doctrinal basis of this limited uh, definition, this restricted definition of sexual activity in question. So that's the doctrinal difficulty that uh, appears uh, in, in Hutchinson. The uncertainty uh, that arises, um, uh, well, first, there's a problem with the doctrinal coherence. The Crown says that the whole purpose of the consent section is to deal with uh, complainants uh, who do not consent uh, to their body being touched in a certain way, and uh, the importance of the word how in that critical uh, passage in, in Ewanchuk. And that um, is uh, what the Hutchinson uh, restricted definition of sexual activity in question does is strictly um, is as restrict and narrow that interpretation uh, of of how so the crown is not um, suggesting that uh, that the section has to be rewritten now by this court as my friend suggests it has to be interpreted uh, it has to be uh, interpreted in a manner consistent with this uh, court's jurisprudence in you and Chuck uh, and uh, okay, in, uh, sorry the uncertainty sorry, sir, arises Mr. Uh, Caldwell, Rowe. Mr. Caldwell we had the chance in Unchinson to look at those previous cases and we decided, as, as, we, as, as you know, as we did. My question to you is now that you are asking the court to reverse a, what I call a recent precedent. There are criteria why a court, the Supreme Court, could reverse a precedent. We see that in Bedford and in Carter. So tell me, give me the, the reasons why we should do it, and not simply a disagreement. I Yes, it, um, we, we, the Crown says without being perhaps explicit, well, uh, purporting to uphold you and Chuck, uh, the, uh, the majority in Hutchison restricted the scope of Section 273.1, uh, uh, the critical section of the code dealing with consent. Um, and uh, in, scenario, in a scenario like this, it is essentially uh, excluded as rel uh, irrelevant, uh, the complainant's entire uh, basis uh, for uh, uh, refusing to uh, uh, subjectively in, in this scenario to uh, engage in, in sexual intercourse. Um, the... Um, It, it uh, uh, is simply out of, uh, to, to apply, the, as Mr. Justice Groberman observed, uh, uh, this is uh, seriously out of uh, touch with reality and dysfunctional in terms of its protection of sexual uh, autonomy. Uh, do you have any cases, do you have prior cases? Because in your factum, you, re you refer to Vavilov and, uh, you know, cases in which uh, precedents were revisited. 
And, of course, it follows a series of court decisions, lower court decisions, with, which, uh, you know, explained that it was confusion, so on and so forth. That's why this court decided to look at it. But those cases are very exceptional. Carter, Bedford, uh, Vavlov. So why, in this case, we should revisit a decision which took into account all the arguments that so far we heard this morning. The, um, I appreciate that the um, academic, uh, sorry, that the judicial criticism um, because of the, of the seven years and because of the, the litigation is not as extensive as in the other examples uh, that uh, perhaps that you have cited. Uh, we do, however, observe uh, both before and after Hutchinson uh, courts grappling with and uh, essentially it, 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 um, uh, almost intuitively or self-evidently regarding uh, matters outside of simply the, the basic sex act, as, as Hutchinson narrowly uh, defined sexual activity in question, uh, as relevant, particularly condom use. And this um, is uh, something that in the, in the Crown Submission the courts are, are struggling with. Uh, this was not controversial in, in our submission, uh, would not have been controversial before Hutchinson. Uh, since Hutchinson, we have uh, decisions, not just of Kirkpatrick, uh, but recently of the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, with respect to Ma and IAD, where without reference to this problematic um, reasoning in Hutchinson, the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, has implicitly accepted that uh, something outside this very basic generic definition of sexual activity in question, uh, condom use in this instance. Okay, so that's, that's, that's uh, called... Is, is um, to consent. That's, um, that's called... Um, not following Supreme Court precedent, isn't it? Well, if you're straining for an answer, I think the answer is yes. Yes, but that demonstrates the difficulties that that that, that courts. Uh, well, no, it demonstrates it demonstrates that decision. they disagree with it, and maybe I disagree with it, but that's not the question. The question is the question is whether to take it back to the Chief Justice's question, whether you have demonstrated the conditions necessary for us to depart from a precedent of this court. And I think if, I mean, I, I keep, I don't know why you're resisting this, because um, the tenor of your submissions is that, that Hutchison was decided uh, without regard to precedents of prior precedents of the court, and is therefore per incurium. Maybe you, I mean, that that's the that's the substance of your submission, and, and you're resisting it. Maybe because that sounds like it's raising the stakes. Maybe we don't like Latin words, but but that's effectively the substance of what you're saying. That Hutchison is an illegitimate decision. No, I, I in my submission that that's that's not my submission with respect. It's that. Hutchinson um, is uh, subverts and, and uh, erodes the, the principle and is a retreat from the critical fundamental principle of personal autonomy that is supposed to be the very heart of the law of sexual assault and, and the consent provision. And what we have now is a restricted definition of sexual uh, activity in question that is limited to basic generic sexual acts and ignores important 
uh, can ignore, as is the uh, example of the case at Barr and cases similar to it, important physical features that will be important to the... So, so it's not an illegitimate subject. decision. It's just subversive of fundamental principle. And I've, got, I've got and the distinction. So, I've got the distinction. Well, it's very hard doctrinally to... to to reconcile um, uh, this narrow definition of sexual activity in question in Hutchinson with this court's other precedents and with uh, what Parliament intended with the purpose of the section when it was enacted, which is to protect uh, personal autonomy. And uh, as well, um, it has led... Is, as, is, as, not, is not the remedy, is not the remedy for Parliament if this court, before I was a member of this court, departed from Parliament's intention is not the proper remedy for Parliament again to speak with sufficient clarity and, and, and to correct us. In, in, in this instance, um, first, uh, the Crown would say that Parliament has spoken and is, uh, it, it, it did with the, the preamble and uh, with the enactment of the section. Uh, and as well, this court has spoken uh, already in Ewanchuk and uh, JA. And uh, we have uh, essentially a doctrinal gap uh, on the uh, the um, ambit of sexual uh, activity in question, and uh, whether one calls it clarification or a partial revisiting uh, of uh, that definition, the Crown says that this court uh, needs to reaffirm the principles in Ewan Chuck and J.A., not handed back to Parliament, uh, and uh, properly recognize that uh, there are physical aspects of, uh, of, a, of a sexual um, uh, activity beyond of the very generic uh, sexual act, in this case, penile vaginal intercourse, that can and properly will go uh, to consent. What we have, is, as, as Justice Brown observed in colloquy with my friend, is a situation where uh, these issues are all being funneled through the fraud vitiating consent provision. And this is uh, fundamentally at odds, as, as Justice Moldaver observed, we have the law deeming uh, people to uh, like the complainant to have consented. Certainly, that was the trial judge's view. Uh, that even though it's it's quite clear she absolutely uh, taking her evidence at its highest um, did not consent uh, to this particular it, uh, sexual activity. Is it not something, and, Mr. Caldwell, sh that should be addressed under 265? Because you referred to the intent of the Parliament when they adopted 273, but 265 is still in the code. And it pertains to consent, too. It, it, yes, Justice Cote, it pertains to fraud vitiating consent, but it's, it's a vitiating um, uh, provision. Uh, and the Crown says that the first step and the first question to ask, and, and I'm heartened by what my, my friend, Mr. Cote, had to say, that, that always the first question to ask is whether there was subjective mm -hmm. consent. Uh, and the, uh, the Parliament enacted the consent section uh, to respond to the unique nature of unique character of the offensive of sexual assault, and it is the first place to start. And uh, it is uh, illogical to then go um, to instead skip over that and uh, and ignore uh, the um, uh, important physical uh, aspects of, uh, of a sexual activity uh, to which complainant uh, doesn't consent in her, in her or their subjective uh, mind uh, to treat that as, as irrelevant if they're 
physically related to uh, the nature of the touching. Uh, the whole point of the section, as enacted and as interpreted by this court, has been to protect the autonomy and the ability of a complainant to control uh, how their uh, person is how their body is touched and we've had this how this important aspect of what uh, uh, of the section restricted and then uh, we have the uncertainty just to get back to uh, uh, Justice Rowe's point um, the uncertainty arises in terms of uh, the uh, uneven and unpredictable uh, uh, aspect of, uh, of, of, the, of the fraud section uh, and uh, is currently conceived uh, there has to be a, uh, a risk of bodily harm uh, or a risk of deprivation. That deprivation requirement um, uh, in, the, in the context of, of risk of pregnancy uh, is going to end up uh, creating very differing results depending on, on the reproductive health status uh, of uh, a female complainant. It will not protect uh, yeah, but there's, male there's, there's two general categories. I mean, if you're talking about a man and a woman having intercourse. I mean, there's pregnancy, but in, in all instances, whatever the genders, there's, of course, a risk of sexually transmitted disease. And that, I mean, unless people are in a very long-term monogamous relationship, you, you almost, it, it's impossible to entirely eliminate that. It, it's always going to be there. And, and, and so if the woman says, look, you know, I want to be protected, and the guy says, oh, yeah, that's great, and then then he, then he kind of uh, lies, right, in effect, by saying, sure, I'll take care of that, and then he doesn't. I mean, I mean how, how complicated is that? So, I, I, Justice Rowe, I, the, 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 the crown submission is that uh, the the first question uh, is has to be subjective consent, and we should we we should not be um, channeling as 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 Justice Brown says the entire analysis uh, away from the subjective uh, 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 requests uh, subjective state of mind of the complainant as as Justice Moldaver uh, put it. Um, it is first and foremost, the section is designed, the issue of consent is entirely subjective and it's up to the complainant and section 273.1 is the uh, principled proper section to employ because it uh, does not uh, inquire into the reason of the complainant. Uh, it, as Justice Moldaver observed, it could be due to birth control, it could be uh, due to a desire to protect from STIs, or it could simply be that is that is how I want my body touched, and I don't want it touched a different way. Right. And that but now, is... you, now we've gotten into what I think is a critical point. The, the consent, as you describe, may be made contingent on all kinds of factors that as a matter of criminal law, we arguably shouldn't say it, it, it's a basis for criminal behavior. And, I, you know, I, there's the ring again, right? Or um, I thought that you were a representative of the Sierra Club, and I find out you're an actually a, a roughneck up in the oil patch. And so, you know, this is a terrible thing which has occurred. I mean, where does it end? And, and the answer is, there are no limits. 
and it becomes a crapshoot, and it becomes an, an, an object of enormous uncertainty, which should not be injected into the criminal law. That is the necessary implication of what you're putting to us. With respect, Justice uh, Rowe, that is, that is not the case, and we've uh, the, the the limit, the doctrinal limit, is that uh, we are talking in, under consent uh, under Section two seventy three decimal one with the physical aspects of how the body is is touched. It, you, no, I appreciate you've gone into questions of identity, and that's not the case here, and that's that's um, not the question here. We're talking about uh, here about how the body is touched, and uh, while it's non-exhaustive, the Crown has tried to set out uh, some uh, factors that go to specifically how the body is touched. These are relevant to Section 273.1 in consent uh, with respect to how the body is touched, the part of bo- the body being touched. What is so, used to so touch the body? So are we now to have an expanding body of jurisprudence, no pun intended, body, corpus of jurisprudence, which says, ah, I'm extending the the, the factors which are relevant for this purpose here. I'm recognizing further factors that are relevant here. And and the thing just grows and grows and grows. And and, and is this how the criminal law is is to be written? Is the criminal law to be so indefinite and to be so open ended that one would not know from day to day whether you're incurring criminal liability or not? Does not does this not simply undermine the whole fundamental basis of a criminal law that it is possible for people to ascertain? Justice Rowe, um, and I, I, I believe it was Justice Martin made this this point that we're we're dealing with with step one, just just actus reus, and, and we're dealing with what's in the subjective uh, mind of the complainant. Uh, it is not a question of overreach. It's the proper reach of Section 273.1, which is to protect personal autonomy and, and how uh, one's body is is touched. So uh, the um, relevancy and, and the the focus, um, and, and there should be flexibility, uh, but what is relevant under Section 273.1 uh, would have to do with specifically how the body is touched um, with what uh, these are, in my respectful submission, it isn't as expanding as uh, my friend uh, from the criminal lawyers put it, or 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 as as you have put it. Uh, we've identified pretty clear uh, factors uh, beyond the simple basic sex act, and that, that's really as as far as this court said it should go in Hutchinson, and that is too restrictive. And uh, we've uh, identified um, uh, a number of physical aspects. This goes to the physical nature of the touching, and that is something that is relevant to a complainant's consent and uh, is something that the law should recognize, where a complainant says, uh, I don't want my body uh, touched with... Uh, in that invasive form, uh, I don't want uh, the. Uh, I, I want a barrier uh, if I'm to be uh, penetrated. I don't want that skin-to-skin contact. I, I don't want. I don't want the complainants. Uh, I don't want the accused uh, ejaculate inside my vagina. We don't get to consequences or risks at this point. That is irrelevant. Consent is for any reason, but this goes to the nature of the touching. So it isn't this infinite expanding universe of, of possibilities. There is a, a, a focus. It has to go to touching. It, 
uh, outside of the of of something that goes to the physical touching that uh, goes too far that isn't something that would be uh, captured in terms of that aspect of, uh, of so, the so can of I the can I can I ask you, you you're asking us to overturn part of Hutchison in as much as a bar's consideration of of relevant physical aspects as you put it of sexual touching such as condom use from the analysis of consent can I ask you then um, because we need to understand, well, what's left of Hutchison. Can I ask you what the legal force, were we to do that, the legal force, uh, the subsisting legal force would be of paragraphs 54 and 55 of the majority decision in Hutchison? Um, in my submission, it... Um, what would remain would be um, uh, that uh, the, the 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 ultimate consequences the um, uh, of uh, certain aspects of the um, uh, of uh, the uh, of the touching are uh, are not um, uh, within the uh, the scope of two seventy three decimal one. So that that important concern in Hutchinson, we we recognize that that's a concern that uh, that could be far reaching. That's the distinction. One of the main distinctions we we uh, we would ask this court to draw is things that go to the physical uh, consequence. Sorry, to the physical nature of the touching, as opposed to uh, the consequences. Uh, so in, in that way, uh, Hutchinson. Okay. Okay. Would but be, can uh, I direct you to paragraphs fifty four and fifty five? What yes. would still be left standing, if anything, from those paragraphs? Because we need to know, if we're changing the law, how are we changing it? Well, let me help you a little bit. Yeah, uh, sorry, I just sorry, uh, Justice, uh, or well. Oh, you go ahead if you want. I just, I, it took me a moment to, to flip oranges, to, the, to my friend's condensed book. Um, the um, certainly what's said about one form of penetration not being in agreement to any and all forms of penetration uh, in, in different body parts. Certainly, we agree with that uh, to the degree to which, in paragraph fifty-four of this court. Um, uh, suggest that uh, generic, general um, sort of categories of kissing, petting, oral sex, intercourse, or the use of sex toys. Um, uh, certainly, uh, those are, um, uh, we don't disagree with those being different categories okay. and being rent, uh, meaningful to, uh, to consent, but uh, that does seem to suggest that there's a specific uh, sex act um, and uh, what's problematic is then 50, paragraph 55 saying that conditions are qualities. Uh, I mean, we... Okay, so 54 is good, I, I but 55 is gone? Uh, the, not the presence of sexually transmitted diseases. Um, uh, and uh, there's concern with the the the... Narrow wording of specific physical sex act that suggests that all forms of of, of penile vaginal intercourse, for instance, would be uh, equal, and, uh, and it's the crown's position that they definitely or or not. Okay, so um, that goes. The, right. the 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 concern is um, the that 
this broad term birth control measures, and, and, I, uh, and I'll address the criminal lawyers um, uh, brief uh, here. Uh, it seems to me that from their brief, the, the they um, say essentially the first question to ask is uh, is the um, uh, is a condom a form of birth control and and that's the wrong uh, question to ask under 273 decimal one because certainly um, a condom its purpose it could be uh, used for that purpose or could be for other purposes but it changes the nature of the physical touching so that's something that uh, uh, it doesn't okay, have okay to so be, the di- uh, the difficulty that you have with Hutchison is the line, the sexual activity in question does not include conditions or qualities of the physical act. You're, you're less concerned about some of the examples, but the categorical nature of that statement, and then, I, and then read in light of that statement, the later statement that at the first stage of the consent analysis, the Crown must prove a lack of subjective voluntary agreement to the specific physical sex act. So understood as not. That's what has to go, right? It, it's so categorical and it's, okay. it's so limited. Exactly, Justice Brown. Uh, it, it, um, uh, it that's the that's the difficulty. And, and um, just, just the, a the moment. first question just, is just, a, just a moment, whether, please. Sorry. Just a moment. It seems to me that that paragraph, with great respect, misses the important point, which is, if the complainant says, "I will only have sex with you if you wear a shirt to bed." Who are we to question that? Most people in this room would say, why? What's going on? You're very peculiar. You're weird. She is an autonomous or he is an autonomous individual and can make that subjective choice that has nothing to do with conditions or qualities. It is a personal choice made by the ultimate complainant. And to the extent we are going behind that and getting... Forgetting that, we are going against jurisprudence from this court since Hutchison that has stressed the autonomy, the dignity, the getting rid of myths and so on in the context of sexual assault. In other words, it's per incurium. Well, you can... I'm not saying it's pure incurium. I'm saying that what my point was, uh, Justice Brown is the, we are, we, we've advanced, we have looked at this subject, Parliament has looked at the subject, but we've looked at the subject too, and we put a big premium on autonomy, dignity of the complainant, and we've stressed it in so many cases since Hutchison, and now we're saying, complainant, forget about your autonomy. If you insist on having someone wearing a shirt before you agree to having sex with them, well, you're just a weirdo. So we're not going to, you know, the heck with what you believe in or what you want. That's irrelevant. Your autonomy is irrelevant. We're not going to even look at that. Because if you have sex and someone were to somehow not wear a shirt and you, to, you weren't aware of it, I mean, that's a crazy example to begin with. But, but you know, suddenly you're deemed to have consented because... You know, um, you, uh, <laughs> you you let this happen. You agreed to sex. I mean, I, I just find it so basic, so completely basic in terms of taking a different approach to the approach this court has taken, you, you know, consistently since Hutchison. 
about autonomy, dignity, and so on. Bottom line point is, if, she, if the complainant, he or she, uh, wants to engage in the most peculiar form of sex that everybody would say is crazy, but that's what they are insisting on, who are we to say no? That's irrelevant. And it's very different than Justice Rose's examples where he's talking about deceit to get into bed with somebody. Justice Moldaver, the Crown uh, agrees um, with uh, the uh, proposition that uh, this court has spoken on this many times uh, with respect to the importance, the, the central fundamental importance of uh, the dignity and the autonomy uh, of, the, uh, of the complainant. Um, uh, and that is uh, a, a fundamental core principle. Uh, it should um, uh, not be uh, something that uh, where the analysis is entirely skipped over uh, and uh, we uh, deal with these situations uh, under the fraud vitiating consent. Uh, and, and, and the important part, and, 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 and maybe just to go back to what, what's problematic about paragraphs, uh, uh, paragraph 55, Justice Brown, is that uh, asking the question, well, if it's for uh, for birth control, is to completely sidestep the, the critical question, which is simply what is the complainant uh, consenting to? What is she? Uh, I, I might even he... agree with you. I mean, don't don't no. assume that I'm disagreeing with you on the merits yes. of the argument. The yes. question is, what do we have to change in the law, and then how do we go about doing that if it all if we can? Right. I, what I think about this distinction isn't the issue. Can, can yes, I... I certainly for for one, it is um, uh, to clarify uh, and uh, to uh, reaffirm uh, the principles that uh, uh, Justice Moldaver was, was just uh, speaking of, uh, to clarify that the first question we, we ask in a case like this, for instance, is, um, uh, is the 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 the, is, is the use of a condom, is it a birth control uh, measure, is the entirely the, the wrong question to ask. The, the question to ask is, uh, does this go to uh, the uh, subjective consent of the complainant? Uh, and uh, particularly, um, the, the Crown says that in the specific facts of this case, it, it does with respect to uh, her ability to control uh, the, uh, her uh, uh, or their, uh, um, uh, how their body is touched. It goes to their autonomy. It goes to their, uh, their dignity. Um, one um, way of, of, of trying to respect the concerns expressed by Justice Rowe on one hand, while at the same time um, uh, doing what, what needs to be done to answer Justice um, uh, Brown's uh, uh, question is um, uh, to uh, recognize, um, albeit as non-exhaustive, uh, that there are uh, a, a number of different aspects of physical touching uh, that will uh, certainly be relevant. Uh, and again, this, is, this has to be flexible. It, it cannot, it's definitely not meant as being exhaustive, but uh, we, we've cited five factors uh, that uh, go well beyond uh, simply the uh, basic sexual act. Uh, that's at paragraph 26 uh, uh, of the Crown's factum. Just before um, you get too far afield from paragraph 55, I want to make yes. sure that I've understood um, what you're saying. And 
I guess what I'm hearing is that you're not disagreeing with what's in paragraph 55 to the extent we're talking about qualities or conditions such as birth control measures. I mean, that would cover IUDs and birth control pills and all those other things, that, examples that people give, or the presence of, uh, uh, of disease. But it is more what's missing from there, which is that condom use, specific consent that goes to whether or not a condom must be used or not is part of the physical act. If I've understood what you're saying, it's, 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 it's not that there's anything wrong with 55, it's just what's missing from 55. I, well, have, I, have I got that right? Because I'm just thinking of the examples that have been given. If, if um, I'm, I'm thinking of teenagers who may say, okay, um, I'm prepared to engage in certain sexual activity provided you don't, uh, provided uh, it's over my shirt, provided my clothes are on, and then the shirt is taken off, um, you know, without the consent. Is that, the, is that consent to that sexual act? No, it, 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 it's not. And in fact, that is is the, the anal exact analogy that uh, uh, that Mr. Justice Groberman used. And and again, this is the the uh, one physical difference. Uh, is is there a barrier or not? Uh, in a much more uh, intimate and uh, invasive form of, of sexual activity, we have the question of whether uh, a barrier is or isn't used. And and the Crown says that the the, the difficulty with the mention of birth control uh, is that uh, that encompasses um, a condom, and a condom uh, has a uh, significance uh, to many complainants, including the one at the, uh, in the case at Barr, uh, that uh, uh, impacts on her consent, uh, and that goes to the physical touching. So if it... If it the, the, um, only, the only thing is, and I guess I, I've said it before and I'll stop after this, but I think there's a difference between a condom and a sabotage condom and condom and no condom. And so this case is in the context of a condom versus sabotage condom. That's what the consent related to. Um, sorry, this case, Hutchison. Hutchison. Whereas this case, it's a condom or no condom. And I just wonder if there's a distinction that, uh, that, that bears on the way in which these paragraphs are applied. Um, Justice Karakasanis, that's, that's one... Um uh, certainly one in, in interpretation, one way of, of it would be one way of resolving um, this case uh, is to distinguish uh, Hutchinson on its facts uh, from uh, condom refusal and removal cases. Um, uh, the concern simply is with um, birth control measures without uh, ask, explicating that, that a birth control measure such as a condom uh, would uh, affect the touching and go uh, directly to how the person is touched, and, and, and that's that's problematic. And and and, uh, and, and that sort of um, if it's a Venn diagram, that's the, there's that overlap between what is a birth control measure and what is also very much um, uh, central to the nature of the of the sexual touching. And, and I, I think in, in large part that's why we're we're here uh, on a doctrinal level. Um, the, uh, I, I will say that, uh, in addition, there is, um, uh, in terms of the, the nature of uh, the sexual contact, and, and, and 
we have a submission on in this regard at, at paragraph 27 that there, in addition to the unwanted skin-to-skin contact when a condom isn't used, there's also contact with um, the ejaculate. That's another, strictly speaking, physical aspect of the touching that's unwanted uh, that, that occurred on, on the complainant's evidence uh, in the case at bar. Um, and uh, it is certainly arguable that even in a deliberately sabotaged condom situation, that is an unwanted um, touching uh, that does arise, the ejaculate with uh, the, uh, the complainant's body uh, that uh, occurs uh, contrary to her wishes. So that is one way in which, uh, contrary to the suggestion that we would distinguish sabotage condoms from no condom at all, that uh, there is still that physical unwanted touching aspect that properly falls under under how. So uh, certainly the Crown also makes that submission that, uh, that uh, in, in that regard, a sabotage condom can be considered uh, as uh, having that aspect, aside from the properties of, of the ejaculate, whether it exposed, uh, whether it leads to things that are properly under the ambit of the fraud section, regardless of whether there are properties of, of STIs and questions of risk of pregnancy, the properties of that, of that contact, it's a substance that a complainant doesn't want to come into contact with, and then against her wishes, she comes into contact with. So in that way, one could say that it, 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 we shouldn't distinguish between sabotage condoms either. So in, in revisiting what was said and clarifying uh, what was um, said uh, and in, in getting away from this, this idea that the first question we have to ask is, well, is this a form of birth control, as the criminal lawyers suggest? That's not the first question. Is The first question properly should be under consent is simply, did the complainant... Uh, uh, subjectively consent to the form of uh, touching? Was it unwanted touching? Uh, did she consent to how she was touched? Uh, uh, and uh, in our submission, it, 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 it would be open perhaps, but, but doctrinally and bearing in mind an aspect of the physical uh, nature of the touching, uh, it certainly is uh, as well. If we look at just Confining it to physical aspects, there is a principal basis to say that that the the sabotage deliberately sabotaged condoms um, do lead to an unwanted physical touching in, in, in that regard. Mr. Caldwell, could you? Um, this is just a question for clarification. When was non-consensual condom removal sort of given a name and understood in the literature and the case law as a form of sexual violence? Is that uh, a recent phenomenon? Is it? Uh, because it's not discussed specifically in Hutchison, but that's really what the case turns on, right? So when did that phenomenon get a name and when did it become understood as a problem? Justice Jamal, um, I am probably one of the last people to ask about sort of contemporary society, and, and there's a difficulty of me providing that evidence. I, I, I can say, though, that uh, we've cited an article by um, uh, an American author, uh, Ms. Brodsky, and, and, and that article uh, from 2017 um, has uh, both, uh, I think, in the academic spheres, but also in, um, uh, in, in, uh, in the media in terms of public interest, um, uh, 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 raised the, um, uh, the, the profile, if you will, of this phenomenon of, of stealthing. Um, uh, we, we, of course, um, the, the Crown emphasizes that, that, that stealthing sort of as it's applied is generally, it applies to non-consensual condom removal. And, and we have here, uh, and that's where sexual intercourse starts with a condom on uh, or just before it, it 
it commences the the, uh, the the sexual dependent partner removes it surreptitiously. Here we have just outright refusal, and, and we have a number of cases, um, uh, as we see from the the ones we've cited, where that is the case. Uh, either way, the crown would submit whether it's refusal or removal, uh, it um, uh, falls under uh, the uh, proper ambit of uh, the consent section uh, of the code. Um, I. Um, with the uh, limited time, I do want to briefly address uh, the uh, the question of fraud. Um, this is very much an alternative um, submission in this case. Um, the um, uh, it's made uh, in the event that this court does not accede uh, to the proposition that um, uh, that uh, the uh, the complainants um, uh, that essentially the, Mr. Justice Groberman's basis for uh, sending the the matter back for trial and in finding that uh, there was some evidence of, of uh, lack of consent under 273.1, if that cannot be acceded to, um, in terms of um, the disposition of the uh, appeal and with respect to the no evidence motion and uh, Justice Cote um, uh, emphasized and called with my friend the importance that there be some evidence and, and Mr. Justice Moldaver uh, emphasized that the that one is to take the case at its highest. Uh, the, the principal focus of the trial judge was on uh, the issue of dishonesty, and it certainly is the, um, uh, the position, the submission of the Crown, uh, that non-disclosure of uh, important facts can amount to uh, dishonesty. That is some evidence. My friend suggests one has to look at all the evidence together, and that's what the trial judge, uh, he says, did. Um, in my submission, that that misses the point that the the weighing of the evidence and uh, uh, was is not for um, a trial judge on a directed verdict application. It, it also misses the point that, that the the main factual aspects that my my friend's um, points to, and I, I believe. Mr. Justice Brown pointed to this out in colloquy, um, the, the acts that he points to that would sort of negative uh, uh, intent in some way occurred only after uh, there had been penetration without a condom for 40 to 45 seconds. Uh, so it really is a simple, straight application of the of what this court said in Courier. Um, and as to uh, this being a non-disclosure of important facts, uh, on, the, on this case, uh, uh, taking the case at its highest, there was abundant evidence, as Mr. Justice Moldaver uh, observed, uh, abundant evidence from this complainant as to her, her wishes uh, uh, that certainly um, a, a jury uh, could conclude that her requirement for a condom was very, very important to her. We don't have to have in my submission, something that uh, uh, compelling or uh, abundant. And uh, of course, the weighing of the evidence is always for the trier of fact. But uh, certainly, this was very important uh, to uh, the uh, the complainant. And uh, and there was enough evidence where a jury could impute um, the knowledge of that importance to, uh, to the accused in this case. So there certainly was some evidence uh, of uh, dishonesty. Um, and with respect to, uh, and that may be uh, sufficient on, on that uh, second, uh, second and secondary issue in this appeal for this court uh, to uh, uphold the, uh, the uh, Court of Appeals uh, order for a, a, a new trial on that basis, uh, as the trial judge did not speak of deprivation. Um, I'll have brief submissions on um, uh, deprivation. Uh, the, the, we have a Obviously, a, a one I submit 
non-controversial uh, submission and finding of, or at least um, holding that uh, there was some evidence of deprivation, and then one that's very, very controversial. The first with respect to the risk of pregnancy uh, in my submission is a, a straight application of what the majority of Hutchinson said about uh, 265 sub 3 sub C. Um, and uh, in the Crown submission, um, the, uh, there was uh, some evidence uh, uh, that uh, there was a risk of pregnancy and that this was of, um, uh, and uh, that was, uh, that was um, uh, enough to meet the test uh, uh, in a, uh, for um, uh, a, a directed verdict uh, application to be dismissed. Um, there was some evidence of, uh, of, of risk of pregnancy. Um, the second aspect uh, that arises on the evidence, um, uh, it, it's appreciated very much by the Crown and recognized that, uh, uh, that uh, it, it uh, is um, uh, arguably inconsistent uh, with um, the HIV scenario. The Crown's position is that it can be distinguished. This is a difference. Um, we're outside the HIV non-disclosure context. We're uh, talking about a uh, about non disclosure uh, of um, uh, an important fact other than HIV status. Uh, it, it's, you, you have the Crown's factum on this that, uh, and we, we part company uh, and disagree with um, the appellant that this did not flow uh, from the uh, appellant's uh, uh, actions in our submission, uh, they, it, it did. Um, and uh, uh, this was something that the complainant had to do to uh, regain control uh, of her uh, bodily integrity. Um, Courier makes it clear one doesn't necessarily have to have a, a risk of harm. There could be a concrete harm. And it was a substantial um, uh, concrete harm. She uh, literally and figuratively uh, could not uh, stand on her feet for uh, about four weeks. The, um, Sorry, I, before, I before, you wanted, go on, before you go on, I want to ask you something. It seems that members of the court, or a number of members of the court, uh, are of the view that non-disclosure may be dishonesty if it uh, goes to a material fact. It's got to go to a material fact, as I understand it. So the same material fact, however, would seem to become not material, material at all, before the act is committed, if you see what I mean. If you're going to look at this from the point of view of material acts, I don't know how something becomes a material fact, shall we say, after the event, and not a material fact before the event for purposes of subjective uh, uh, consent. Maybe you can help me. Well, in the context of, of this case, um, it, it certainly is the, the Crown's um, uh, submission that, uh, that, that really it, 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 it was material and it, it really is properly dealt with under uh, subjective consent, not right. under fraud initiating consent. It, it, it's problematic. Uh, in one sense, it's uh, somewhat illogical to uh, move on to discuss whether someone has been tricked um, into something that, into consenting to something that they didn't consent to in, in, in the first place, if I could put, put it that way. And, and, and that's why um, our position, our submission is that very much what we have to say um, is uh, in very much in the alternative um, on uh, with respect to fraud. 
Uh, I, I did as well just want to attempt to respond to something that um, Madam Justice Martin raised with uh, my uh, friend, and that was with respect to the, the possibility of expanding the, the scope of, of deprivation in this context uh, outside of the HIV context to include um, concerns with respect to uh, dignity and autonomy, those, those harms. And um, that is, uh, again, it, it's, it's not the manner of rewriting the law that the Crown um, would propose here. Um, and I suppose one difficulty is that that continues the problematic course of dealing with matters that really go to consent and really are properly considered and protected under subjective consent under section 273 decimal one and uh, should not be dealt with uh, under uh, fraud uh, vitiating uh, uh, consent. Um, but yes, and there is another methodological point that I'd hasten to make, that while I think we're all of the view that the Constitution is a living tree whose uh, terms have to be um, interpreted in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ongoing way. My understanding is that the meaning of a statute is to be ascertained as of the time of its enactment. And it doesn't change its character or its meaning over time. Now, you may say the interpretation given to it may, may change, but it, it's, it's almost sounding like we've got a living tree statutory provision, which is problematic, particularly in the criminal law context. Well, Justice Rowe, um, the uh, Crown um, does submit uh, that uh, that is why this court should take the opportunity to, to, to clarify uh, the uh, scope of sexual activity in question, uh, to clarify uh, which section uh, should uh, apply? We say it should be 273 decimal one. Should should do the work and uh, with respect to physical aspects of touching that are, are unwanted, um, and and not channel it all to uh, the fraud section, um, and uh, so that there is um, in that sense some uh, certainty. Uh, just to go back to the issue of of, of uncertainty, though, um, one difficulty with the present state of affairs uh, is that with the channeling of all these cases under fraud, it, it depends on the reproductive health status or the, the um, uh, SDI status of uh, the um, uh, of the parties involved. So uh, a, a woman who is pregnant, uh, a, a, a man, um, uh, they cannot be uh, impregnated. A, person, a woman who's incapable of getting pregnant um, uh, cannot uh, fall under that uh, type of uh, uh, bodily harm. There's a bit of a liability lottery effect right now as it stands if we channel it all under section 265 sub 3 sub c um, and for that matter um, uh, if we have say uh, an accused uh, hypothetically who uh, is clean of all stis and has had a successful vasectomy then that person uh, under if it's all under 265 sub 3 sub c can disregard autonomy disregard a complainant's wishes in this context in this fact pattern um, with impunity and uh, because there's no uh, even if there's deception as well uh, it, there's flagrant 
uh, flouting of, of complainants' wishes. Let's say there's lots of deception as well along the way the two coexist, but there's no uh, risk of uh, bodily harm as recognized uh, currently in the case law, uh, then that person can act with uh, impunity. Uh, and that's another very problematic aspect of, of channeling it all under 265 sub 3. And that that is really where there's a great deal of uncertainty here. And in my submission, that justifies uh, revisiting uh, the um, uh, and, and, and clarifying what uh, was said in, in Hutchinson uh, and uh, uh, in the scope of sexual activity uh, in question. Your time is up. Thank you very much. The court will take a break of 10 minutes. Thank you. Be seated. Miss Rideout. No, I'm sorry, Miss uh, Bonnet. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. Ontario intends to address two points today. First, I will differentiate between the fraud vitiating consent analysis that goes to the actus reus question and the reasonable steps required under the mens rea analysis. And second, I will discuss the specific definition of sexual activity in question that Ontario proposes. Requiring that a condom be used during sexual intercourse is a condition of a person's subjective consent. A complainant has got to be able to count on their stated limits and conditions having a legal effect. At the actus reus stage, the relevant question is whether the complainant was subjectively consenting in her own mind at the time the act was occurring. Her reasons for that decision are not relevant to the analysis. A definition of consent at the actus reus stage that decouples the complainant's fact-specific subjective consent from the legal definition would have negative ramifications for the foundational principles of sexual integrity, personal autonomy, and dignity. And this problem can be highlighted by considering the alternative next steps in the analysis, which change depending on how consent is defined. If a complainant was deemed to have legally consented to the physical and sexual act based on a blunt categorical interpretation of the sexual activity in question, for example, if a requirement for a condom was not incorporated into the definition of the sexual act in question, the law would deem a complainant to have sub subjectively consented. The mens rea analysis would be bypassed and the focus instead would be on the legal test for fraud vitiating consent. The problem with having condom use be considered under section 265.3 
is that fraud vitiating consent does not consider whether the accused took reasonable steps to confirm the complainant's communicated consent, because it would be predicated on a deception about the condom use. If there is no deception, but instead a flagrant disregard for a complainant's request for a condom, then there, there's no deception. And an accused would never be asked whether he mistakenly believed the complainant had communicated consent to intercourse without a condom. You also cannot deceive a complainant, but also have an honest but mistaken belief that the complainant communicated her consent. The controlling question in the fraud analysis then would be whether there was enough harm experienced by the complainant for it to be considered culpable conduct. Respectfully, that is the wrong focus. It is unprincipled and does not bring clarity to sexual assault law. Instead, the proper approach is that most cases must be considered through the mens rea analysis. If a complainant did not subjectively consent, then an accused must have taken reasonable steps to confirm that there was an honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. This would be a mistake of fact. This court has carefully delineated the mens rea criteria. It is settled law that it is not a reasonable step to confirm communicated consent if an accused tries to test the waters, if an accused recklessly or knowingly engages in non-consensual sexual touching, or if an accused ignores conditions, assertions about a person's subjective consent. These are meaningful protections put in place to ensure that propensity reasoning is not used and to ensure that we meaningfully recognize that only mess, yes means yes. A definition at the actus reus stage must be understood in line with this mens rea analysis. Ontario takes the position that the definition of sexual activity in question as set out in section 273.11 must include subjective consent to all physical aspects of the specific activity, plus any detail referable back to the sexual nature of the activity. The criminal code in section 273.11 does not use the word physical in their definition of sexual activity. So while we agree that all aspects of the physical touch are included in the definition, and we would adopt British Columbia's five enumerated points in their factum, the definition is not restricted to the physical aspects of the act. Subjective consent is required for anything that transforms the sexual quality or nature of the act. In relation to condom refusal, removal, or sabotage, this means that a complainant can control whether a condom is used and withdraw her consent if a condom is not used. Sex with and without a condom are different physical acts and different in their sexual quality. Thank you. Thank you. Christine Rideout. Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices. It is the position of the Attorney General of Alberta that intercourse with a condom is a different sexual act than intercourse with a, without a condom for the purposes of Section 273.1. The scope of the sexual activity in question in that section must be interpreted in a manner that is broad and flexible enough to encompass physical acts or aspects that are inextricably linked to the sexual act in question. An approach to consent that unduly narrows 
the scope of the sexual activity in question by effectively barring from consideration any physical aspects that form part of the sexual act is contrary to the modern approach to consent that has developed in this court over decades and which in many ways is encapsulated by this court's decision in Ewan Chuck. In Ewan Chuck, this court confirmed that having control over who touches one's body and how lies at the core of human dignity and autonomy. Having control over who touches one's body and how necessarily encompasses the right to determine whether one's body is penetrated by a bare penis versus a penis covered by a condom. By way of illustration, this court in Hutchinson confirmed that the use of a sex toy is a different sexual activity for the purposes of section 273.1. In other words, attaching a sex toy to one's penis would transform any vaginal intercourse into a different sexual activity for which consent is required. How can the same analysis and conclusion not be applied to the use or non-use of a condom? The short answer is that it cannot. When a person restricts or limits their consent to the how, that person is entitled to the protection of the law if their sexual partner disregards those limits and engages in a different sexual activity for which they have no consent. That issue falls to be determined under Section 273.1, not the fraud provision of Section 265, Sub 3, Sub C. A person's entitlement to the protection of the law in those circumstances should not be contingent on a demonstration of harm or a risk of harm. Any finding to the contrary is not only inconsistent with the Ewanchuk principles, but it will also have profound and disproportionate impact or implications for the autonomy, the dignity, the security, and the equality of women, given the highly gendered nature of this offense. It will also have implications beyond uh, non-condom or condom use and extend to other physical aspects that form an integral part of the sexual act. So Ms. Rado, in Hutchison, the majority held that deceptions will only vitiate consent if there's dishonesty, which gives rise to a risk of physical harm beyond the injury inherent in being lied to in order to induce consent. Is, right. is, should that, in your view, then um, be overturned? Well, I think what has to be recognized is that Hutchinson is dealing with sabotage condom use. It's not dealing with the use or non-use of a condom, which transforms the physical activity, which brings the issue of consent under Section 273.1. And perhaps a clearer so, so way of looking the, at that. So were the dissenters and the majoritarians just ships passing in the night because the dissenters... I mean, clearly saw, um, clearly saw the issue that separated them as um, whether use of a condom is included in the manner in which sexual activity is carried out. That, that is certainly a case that the, I would say that the, the, the minority in that case did recognize the implications, but it doesn't change the fact that the issue before the court was the use of a sabotage condom, not the use or non-use of the a facts, condom. was the facts, but they were much more categorical, were they not, in paragraph 55, paragraph I, I, I must say, I, I find that to be a very questionable point of distinction. It's a difference. It's a factual difference. In every single case, you can point to a factual difference. Someone's eyes are blue rather than green, right? This is, but does it matter? 
But how does that Are we not talking about things of a similar nature? And and it seems to me we are. And so what you're asking us to do is not distinguish Hutchison, but to overturn it. Well, I would... My response would be I'm asking this court to clarify that Hutchinson does not apply in the context of the use or non-use of a condom, that it was in the context decided in the context of a sabotage condom. And to bring it full circle, we talk about the color of eyes, we talk about whether an individual is married or not, but let's look at the other implications of carrying um, the fact-specific finding in Hutchinson to other areas. And the, and the area I refer to in my materials is the use and level of force, right? In, and, and this is not, when I raise this, this is not to say that it is um, uh, speculative. It is in the facts of Barton. In that case, the Alberta Court of Appeal confirmed that that jury needed to clearly understand that the sexual activity in question included the amount of force used by an accused. It confirmed that the jury should have been instructed to consider whether there was any evidence that the deceased voluntarily agreed to engage in sexual activity that involved the degree of force required to rip an 11-centimeter hole in her vaginal wall. It confirmed that a description of the sexual activity in question limited to vaginal penetration, which is a generic act, uh, by the accused hand was incomplete. All right. Thank you. Your time is up. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Berenbaum. The clinic will focus its submissions on um, the the question of condoms and not go beyond it. The clinic submits that it is only one aspect of Hutchinson that needs to be revisited. If Justice Groberman's decision is to be followed, then the only question is whether a sabotage condom is to be analyzed under fraud or subjective consent. And if Justice Bennett's decision is to be followed, then the question is whether or not a condom use is part of the sexual act in question, such that the question is whether a woman or other person can say as a limit on subjective consent, I won't have sex with you unless you wear a condom, and that subjective consent matters in law. The clinic submits that the law of sexual assault needs to accord with our social understandings of consent to sex. And the reality is, is that we're almost eight years to the day of Hutchinson being argued before this court, November of 2013. A lot has changed in those eight years. The understanding, social and uh, understanding of non-consensual condom removal, refusal, resistance and sabotage as a serious and pervasive form of gender-based violence is recent and posted Where's, 2013. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Where's the evidence in this file? The um, court can take account of the literature that is put before the court and the clinic has submitted in its factum and has cited to the policies of colleges and universities across this country. We've provided examples that have taken it upon themselves to be expressed in their sexual violence policies that stealthing or other forms of condom violations I appreciate, are I appreciate what you mentioned in your factum and it was well done. Uh, but you're asking us to reverse a precedent of this court. Uh, for instance, in Vavilov, it took two days, 27 interveners. We had all the evidence. The, uh, the proof was there. Uh, where's the proof in this? Where's the evidence in this case? In Aside Hutchinson, the court did not have the benefit of a myriad of condom violation cases from lower courts 
before it. You do now. Since Hutchinson, disagree with the submissions of the appellant, the law is not clear. There well, are numerous know, cases. There were other cases in Barton. Barton, this case, Justice Moldaver wrote Barton, and he refers to Hutchinson in agreement. Yes, and my submission is that Hutchinson is good law, but for this one aspect of Hutchinson, which is whether or not condom use goes to the physical act, the sexual activity in question. It's a small revisiting that the clinic submits must be, uh, must be considered. Um, considering, too, that post-Hutchinson, um, cases like GF and Barton, which continue to reaffirm a uh, positive, affirmative standard of consent, um, uh, make revisiting or reconsidering Hutchinson appropriate. And paragraph while 88, course, paragraph 88 of Barton says otherwise. The clinic submission is that paragraph 88 of Barton doesn't specifically address the issue before this court, which is whether or not condom use does or doesn't go to the sexual activity in question. Justice well, just, Rowe, you asked the question of whether or not... Let me just interrupt for a second. Um, I tend to agree with your last submission, but more importantly, the Chief Justice raised Vavilov, and we've had criticism of the fact that we are, uh, in interpreting a statute, that it, you know, you look at it at the time, you don't reassess it as time goes on, and yet that's precisely what this court did in Vavilov on the issue of what an appeal means in the context of administrative law. We reversed a whole body of authority of this court and came out with a conclusion that I agree with, that appeal should mean appeal. So this notion that we cannot change a statute because we're bound by it or whatever, uh, it just doesn't seem to apply in that case, but it's being put to us by several people in this case. And the clinic's submission is that the statute was correctly interpreted in Ewanchuk and approaching condom uh, use as an appropriate limit on voluntary subjective consent is consistent with Ewanchuk, Barton, JA, GF, and so on. And the clinic submits that to hold otherwise... Ewanchuk was rendered before Hutchison. Yes, the submission responds to the idea that... Um, that the statute uh, is now being uh, reinterpreted in my submission. It's uh, being in interpreted in a manner that the clinic submits consistent with pre and post Hutchinson right. um, case law. And Thank to hold much. otherwise would give sorry, women more I'm control sorry, over their bank accounts than their bodies. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Litwick. Yes. Um, Chief Justice, Justices, West Coast Leaf makes two points in argument, and the focus of West Coast Leaf's argument is first, that the fraud analysis, and more specifically, the requirement to prove a significant risk of serious bodily harm is a deep invasion of a complainant's privacy, and second, that the harmful invasion of privacy is not a necessary evil in violative condom practice cases. On the first point, we say that the fraud analysis, by virtue of the Crown's burden to prove health-related harm, turns the complainant's health history into an essential element of the Crown's case. As we address at paragraph 11 of our factum, after Courier, 
Evidence that has been considered in the course of the deprivation analysis includes risk of unwanted pregnancy in Hutchinson, HIV transmission or the risk thereof in Courier and Mavior, adverse reaction to post-exposure prophylactic medication in this case, transmission of genital herpes in JH, and potentially severe emotional trauma in Lupi. For the Crown to bring a case to submission, issues like that will have to be discussed with the police, with the Crown, and in open court under cross-examination. Both the jurisprudence and the criminal code reflect the fact that a sexual assault complainant has enduring and important privacy and dignity interests that the justice system has an interest in maintaining. I note, for instance, Section 276.3F of the Criminal Code, which requires a trial judge to consider the privacy and dignity interests of a complainant before admitting sexual history evidence. Um, and I also note uh, similar provisions in the new records regime that this court uh, recently considered in JJ. My submission is that there are many complainants who will not be willing to discuss this type of information on top of discussing a degrading sexual experience. Others will be harmed by the requirement that they do so. And the reasons for that extend beyond mere embarrassment. The health-related analysis can bring out information that is stigmatized and which may be related to a complainant's lived experience of prejudice and disadvantage. Such information could include gender identity when it addresses when it's relevant to fertility, HIV status, and abortion. The requirement to discuss, to discuss such matters means that some complainants will be reasonably fearful upon learning that their sexual health will be a focal point at trial. The factum of the Criminal Lawyers Association illustrates just how invasive this fraud analysis can be. An accused that they submit at paragraph 19 that the accused may be able to raise a reasonable doubt by proving that the complainant would have consented regardless of the deceit. On this defense strategy, the complainant is not only cross-examined about her sexual health, but also on the additional issue of how much that mattered to her in the heat of the moment. We submit that there is a public interest in not subjecting complainants to that type of cross-examination. We also submit that the harm analysis is not a necessary evil of cases like the case at bar, and that is because the analysis under section 273.11 can afford for consideration of condom use without opening the door to overcriminalization of people who are HIV positive, which West Coast Leaf agrees this court must be vigilant and guarding against. Unlike the presence of HIV, a condom is immediate, it is physical, it is visible, and it is easy to change. We submit that a condom is an element of a sexual encounter that has implications not only for health, but also for intimacy. Recognizing the difference refocuses the law of consent on harm to autonomy and lets courts get out of the business of scrutinizing whether the complainant was fertile or whether the accused had an STI. In Barton, this court recently recognized that the criminal justice system must do more to eliminate myths, stereotypes, and sexual violence against women. And West Coast Leaf submits that relegating all condom use cases to the fraud analysis would be a step in the opposite direction. The impact of the deprivation analysis is the perpetuation of the already significant and well-noted disadvantage that sexual assault complainants experience in interacting with the criminal justice system.
It does not matter whether the complainant was concerned about pregnancy, whether they were concerned about not spreading their own STI, or whether they were simply not prepared to give the accused that level of access to their body. The law must recognize a person's right to make economy use a part of their consent without demanding health-related justification. Thank you, Thank you very you. much. Francis Milan. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Leaf intervenes to argue that interpreting sexual activity in question in Section 273.1 of the Code to include the activity of sex with a condom recognizes and safeguards the autonomy equality, and dignity of complainants, and it also promotes substantive equality and access to justice for marginalized individuals. And I'd first like to address uh, what I might call the Hutchinson problem that the court has been wrestling with this morning. And I would say, first of all, that this case is not about a sabotage condom. It's not about using ineffective birth control. That was the situation in Hutchinson. But today, this court must decide whether the violation of a person's choice to use a condom during sex constitutes a lack of consent. And Leaf argues that this interpretation does not offend the principle of restraint in criminal law. And Justice Kirkitsanis, as you observed, the concern in Hutchinson was with fraudulently using ineffective birth control and that some people might deliberately render birth control ineffective. And the concern of the court there was that other people might simply make a mistake and get caught up by the criminal law. And we need to read paragraphs 54 and 55 of Hutchinson in that context and the reference to birth control measures also specifically within the context of ineffectiveness and the deliberate choice to use those measures. So were the dissenters just ships passing in the night? They, they missed the point of the majority? No, I would not argue that. We would also need to read the dissent in that same context of what was at issue in that case, which was a deliberately sabotaged condom. On the well, that's not what they say. Case, they say the heart of their disagreement turns on the, whether the use of a condom is included in the manner in which sexual activity is carried out. It's much more categorical. But maybe, I mean, maybe they were ships passing the night. Maybe they missed the point of the majority. I would not uh, suggest that, certainly. Um, what I will say, though, is that decisions are not made in a vacuum. They are made in the context of the facts of that case, which, again, was a sabotage condom. And on the facts of this case, there's no possibility of mistake, which was the concern animating the court in Hutchinson. You're either using a condom or you're not using a condom. And to Justice Rowe's point, this is possible to understand, and it's easy to ascertain. It doesn't create vagueness or uncertainty in the criminal law. Requiring the use of a condom sets a reasonable expectation and a limited scope of consent. Yes, but my, my point is, is, is not that condom use itself gives rise to uncertainty. It is the principles upon you urge upon us and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the doctrinal basis upon which we would make the specific determination with respect to condoms. The, the court does not speak in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a language entirely of particulars. It speaks in a language of general principles, which when applied in this case, would have a certain effect in terms of condom use. 
So I think it's disingenuous to say this court would decide only the issue of condom use because the, the, the principles upon which you urge upon us have far greater implications, and it's, it's simply disingenuous, but I suppose that's just my view. Justice Rowe, how I would respond to that is to use an example that my friend Mr. Cote for the appellant gave at the beginning of his submissions when he referred to a lower court decision that involves the situation of a person saying, I will only have sex with you with a condom, and their sexual partner saying, I don't care, and proceeding to have sex with them. Mr. Cote made the observation that, of course, that was sexual assault. But why is it sexual assault? It's sexual assault specifically because the complainant's consent was not respected there. There was no issue of fraud or deceit in that case. It was abundantly clear what was going on. The problem was that he didn't use a condom when she asked him to do it. It is a component of consent when someone says, I need you to use a condom when we have sex. Our last point, and I'll make this very quickly, is that by interpreting uh, the provision otherwise, it could create a gap in the law, specifically for those examples where there is no fraud or deceit. And I see my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Khalid Jan Mohamed. Chief Justice, Justices, the HIV interveners are here today to urge the court to ensure that its decision on this appeal does not expand the scope for prosecutions or convictions flowing from HIV non-disclosure. HIV non-disclosure is already over-criminalized in Canada, as the federal government has acknowledged, flowing in part from the application of sexual assault laws and from the legal framework established in Courier and Mabior. With that context in mind, before turning to two brief submissions, I'll note that regardless of where non-consensual condom removal is situated in the criminal code, the response is carceral, and the HIV interveners do not endorse expanding carceral legal responses as a general proposition. The HIV interveners first submit that condom removal ought to be situated under Section 273.1 because that poses less risk of harm to people living with HIV. The risk is lessened because the condom removal analysis would be conceptually distinct from the HIV non-disclosure analysis, avoiding the risk of condom removal jurisprudence leading to the expansion of the criminalization of HIV non-disclosure. In contrast, so long as condom removal remains within Section 265, HIV non-disclosure jurisprudence will likely continue to be considered in condom removal cases, leaving open the risk of expanding criminalization of HIV non-disclosure, which we elaborate upon in our second submission. The risk is also apparent in the decision below and in this court's decision in Hutchinson, because Courier and Mabior are considered throughout both as part of the fraud and deprivation analysis. Our final point for this submission, set out at paragraphs 9 to 13 of our factum, is that if the court decides to situate condom removal under section 273.1, it's crucial that it expressly confirms that HIV non-disclosure remains under the section 265 analysis, because sexually transmitted infections, or STIs, do not form part of the physical sexual act which would be consistent with this court's previous jurisprudence and would ensure that there is no confusion about the legal framework that applies to HIV non-disclosure. And to go back to Justice Brown's question, that's part of what's left of paragraph 55 of Hutchison if the court resituates Connor removal to section 273.1. Moving to our second submission, 
Alternatively, if the court decides that Connor removal should remain under the Section 265 fraud analysis, it must ensure that the threshold for deprivation in HIV non-disclosure cases is not lowered, starting with why we say that is. At present, following Mabior, deprivation in HIV non-disclosure cases is determined solely based on whether there is a realistic possibility of transmission of HIV. Absent that realistic possibility, there is no deprivation, irrespective of whether the complainant experienced stress or side effects from preventive medications. And to go back to Justice Martin's question, sexual fraud always requires deprivation as decided in Courier, and it must. Otherwise, the HIV non-disclosure legal framework would be undermined and there would be no need for a realistic possibility of transmission. The realistic possibility constraint is necessary and crucial to ensure that criminalization of HIV non-disclosure is given as much certainty and restraint as possible within a legal framework that is already overbroad. As set out at paragraph 18 of our factum, if stress related to potential HIV exposure or side effects related to preventive medications could amount to deprivation for HIV non-disclosure, these after-the-fact and unpredictable factors could result in convictions even where there is no realistic possibility of transmission, including where there is zero risk, and it would be impossible for people living with HIV to know whether particular conduct would constitute a crime at the time of the sexual activity. And if the court decides that condom removal ought to remain under Section 265 and recognizes psychological harm or medication side effects as deprivation, there is a real risk that this could carry over to the HIV non-disclosure context and override the realistic possibility threshold. That is what happened at trial in Thompson and was fortunately corrected on appeal as we set out at paragraph 15 of our factum. But it could well happen again if this court recognizes that kind of harm as deprivation in the condom removal context. That addresses why it's important to maintain the realistic possibility threshold for HIV non-disclosure. To conclude, I'll address how to do so if the court decides that condom removal ought to remain under Section 265. The first approach would be to hold that neither the stress of potential STI exposure or testing, nor side effects of preventive medications amount to serious bodily harm, and to confirm that a realistic possibility is a sole deprivation for HIV non-disclosure. We say that's the most certain approach and it minimizes the risk to people living with HIV. Alternatively, if this court recognizes psychological harm or medication side effects as serious bodily harm, the court must then make clear that this recognition is limited to the condom removal context and does not carry over to HIV non-disclosure, where a realistic possibility of transmission is the sole threshold for deprivation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any reply, Mr. Corte? Mr. Chief Justice, no reply. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you to all counsel for their good submissions. Um, the court will take the case under advisement. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.